Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to collinslaststand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Quincy Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining us today on this uh, auspicious occasion. Enter freely and of your own will. (laughs) That was pretty bad. That was pretty bad. Pretty, pretty bad. How are you, my friend? I'm I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. How are you? How's everything going? Good. A week, a week away from Christmas as we record this. Indeed. And it'll go live around the same time that uh, everyone... Well, let me think here. This will go live. No, I guess it'll go live about a week before Christmas. And it'll go live, I think, right after Christmas for freeloaders out there on the free feeds, which is fine. Right, right. And today's uh, episode is a very festive Christmas season style episode all about Dracula. Now, (laughs) I wanted to do this episode and frame it around the 1897 Dracula novel, of course, the origins of Dracula, really, as we know him uh, by Bram Stoker. And we'll talk about that book and everything. But really, and I was talking to you about this over text message, I think, yesterday, Dave, yeah. I kind of want to frame this conversation more in the sense of, well, yeah, let's talk about the book and, and everything. But really, the imagery and the inspiration that is drawn off of it and goes in so many different directions, particularly, I think, the first 50 pages and then as you go in from there. But I think you and I were discussing, I think that the first 50 pages of the book are really, really excellent. And uh, there's just so much of this book in so much fiction that I don't think people really appreciate. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well, because this will be the oldest topic, like the oldest thing that we've done a topic on, yeah. I think. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, I think it is. I don't I, and I don't think that's you know, we only got a little bit of input from the audience about this one. So, OK, I don't want to get I don't want to get crazy about talking only about the book when we can really talk about all the inspiration as well and kind of make this a little more accessible to those that that haven't read the book. So uh, for the uninitiated, Knockback is our retro and nostalgia podcast. Dagan and I do every week. You can support it on Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad free access to every episode of the show. Do you have the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas early? We let you know the topics. You let us know what you think and we read them on the air. I think we'll get to everything submitted for this particular episode, which is becoming increasingly rare as our show becomes more popular. So we thank you uh, so very much for that. But before we get into the topic at hand, 1897's Dracula and then all the inspiration that's drawn off from it. Uh, Dave. Yes, sir. We do our opening segments but before we even get into the opening segment yeah and all of this i gotta tell you guys something so <laughs> i'm moving this will be the second to last episode of knockback recorded from la right and then we'll it's pretty crazy so i think i want to say what is this like 97 or something like that so yeah just a couple more episodes to 100 we have a good plan for episode 100 yes. so please be excited about that as well which i'm, I'm looking forward to we'll get well i won't ruin it too much, but we'll we'll veer back into games in a pretty major way for there episode go, right. 100, which Woo. which I'm excited about. But uh, I've been moving, so I'm, I've been gathering all my items together, and I'm putting them in these FedEx boxes that I purchased, and Ramon's going to come and drive me there, and we're going to go back and forth and just get everything shipped. I don't have that much stuff. It'll probably be, I don't know, like six 
20 by 20 by 20 boxes and a couple of other things like my guitars and stuff. So okay, I was wondering nothing too about crazy. That. Okay, all right. Yeah, that nothing too crazy. Too I already threw a bunch of I already threw a bunch of my furniture away and I'm going to have like one of these junk companies come and just take like my mattress and all this kind of shit. So I'm not moving anything too crazy. But I was in the master bathroom today, this afternoon, right, got out of the shower. And then I was like, you know what? I should just see what's under here, like under the sink. That's okay. mine because a lot, most of the stuff's not mine. And there was this bottle of unopened like uh, cologne that I got from one of my sponsors, like my sponsors on knockback in particular on sacred symbols, a lot of men's products and stuff sponsor the show. So they send you like samples and I had this cologne and I had never, I don't use cologne. I mean, I don't wear cologne. I don't think I've really worn cologne since I was like a little kid, basically like when I used to think it was like cool (laughs) to put on a little like, Remember, I remember I had this. I remember I had this uh, cologne that I think Dad gave me called Canoe or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Remember that's canoe? iconic, of course. And uh, w- w- and it says like Canoe by Dana or something like that on it, which is our, <laughs> our, which I always I don't know why I remember that. Our sister's name's Dana, so I guess that's why I remember that. But anyway, I had this unopened bottle of of cologne and it slipped out of my hands like a like a stick of butter basically, and it dropped on the ground. And then it kind of like stayed still. And I didn't realize that it like the bottle had broken, but it stayed like a like a bottle together. And so I picked it up and then it just it just spilled cologne, this unopened thing of cologne all over my bathroom. And it just it stinks (laughs) in my apartment right now. Holy! I guess that's where that's like what I'm getting to is it's just I I cleaned it up. I actually like cleaned it with water and it it, it landed on tile and stuff. So I cleaned it with water and then. I went back in there later and cleaned it with like straight pine saw, like just straight up, not right. even uncut. Yeah, yeah. Pine saw to get it out. But I think it's like spilling out of my pores or something because oh, I like wiped it up and it just I just stink like a guido and it smells like a guido oh, in my apartment. Dude. And oh, it's not a good crazy. scene in here right now. It just sopped into every molecule of that ceramic tile or whatever. Oh, that's I, I, exactly like I would. Thank God I don't own this place because I don't know like what I would do. Uh, I, I assume it'll go away, but hey, I, at least I don't it's know. a pleasant. I mean, at least it's a pleasant odor. I mean, not in that, not in that volume, but at least it's not something like really crappy. You know, at least it's a something that's meant to smell good. <laughs> Salmon fish extract or something. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> something just horrible like that. <laughs> something terrible. I was I was watching a video on YouTube yesterday of a guy opening up a bottle of olives from the 1870s. Oh my and god! It was. It was basically just dirt, like like almost looked like dirt coming out of the bottle. And he just said it smelled like so it was like making him gag and stuff like that. Oh, my God. That's awful. So initially it was like packed in oil or something, probably. I guess so. Yeah. And apparently this guy was saying that it was from what he bought. Some guy sent it to him. And apparently it's from like some shipwreck or something like that from like the it's probably like a haunted bottle of olives. But what that sounds amazing what are you watching over there i'm getting all sorts of weird recommendations on youtube these days because i'm watching like all these really eclectic videos and that was one of the things that came up like i'm watching a lot of these like people that are like living in the woods or like in their cars or vans i watch like these (laughs) these videos of these guys and then i'm also watching a bunch of i'm watching a few things i'm watching compilations of what are called cringe compilations which are like people and most of them are like people acting out in public or getting in the fights in public. Oh, wow. And then I'm watching like oh. entire fist fight compilations that people have gotten like in you know, like convenience stores and stuff like that. So I'm getting all oh, these really dude. pretty, pretty fucking crazy shit. Oh, road rage compilations. Pretty good. Pretty good <laughs> stuff. 
That all so. sounds intriguing. Everything you mentioned sounds like some things I could watch all day long, actually. Oh, it's great. It's dude, there are endless compilations with millions of views, if not hundreds of thousands of views each, of just people oh, sure. flipping out in Walmart and uh, doing these all. The other thing is that there's this group of like, did I tell you about these kids in Texas that are like in their late teens, or early 20s that are setting up pedophiles? through like whatsapp or something and then they go no. and capture them like go and embarrass them themselves instead no of like getting way. the cops involved it's fucking crazy and they always go to the same walmart in like houston and like <laughs> confront the person and they make them like meet the they make the pedophile like meet them trick them to meeting them like all the way in the back of the walmart like where the dvds or whatever are or the games and then right, so right. they have to like walk all the way back through the walmart as they're being harassed by these I, these kids dude, filming them br- that is brilliant. First of all, that's absolutely brilliant. I got to look for that as soon as we're done with the show, if I can remember that. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, I got to remember the name. I'll send it to you. But anyway, I don't know what we're talking about. Well, you know what, Kyle? When it comes to your move, I have to say, I have I attest that something's always got to go wrong. So if that's the biggest thing that goes wrong in your move, it's a pretty major move that you're doing. So if that's the biggest thing that goes wrong, wrong the cologne incident, I think we're we're in good shape. So let's hope. Yeah, it's the the cologne incident. It sounds like some sort of like nineteenth century American like Senate scandal or something like that. Like the te- <laughs> it really does. The, the, like the teapot the dome scandal or whatever the fuck it was called. So, uh, all right, Dig, let's get into the opening segment before we start talking about our vampiric friend Dracula and all of his acquaintances, like Harker. All right, and everyone <laughs> that else. Sounds like Van, a plan to me, my and friend. Van Helsing. Uh, yeah, oh, so I'll uh, kick it over to you, and we'll go from there obsessed with van helsing but we'll get to that so yeah new opening segment not so new anymore because we're what six seven eight episodes into knockback wave 11 now but we're calling it fake news question mark and all it is guys play along at home if you haven't tuned in yet this this season this wave is i'm going to read you two separate new little news blurbs One is a real news blurb that I found usually on the internet. It could be a newspaper type thing. The other news blurb I created myself. And it's fake. And Colin's going to tell, and you guys play along at home too, you guys tell me which is the real news blurb and which is the one that I created in order to fool you. Fair enough? Let's do it. So let's, let's begin. Kyle, When two very elderly nursing home residents went missing last week in northern Germany, police were initially baffled. No nursing home employees or fellow residents ever noticed the pair of 91-year-old men leave the building, but the sneaky seniors apparently slipped away around lunchtime, reports say, in order to attend a heavy metal festival located about 15 miles away. The rocking duo, duo... were finally found by family members about 40 minutes before the eight-hour concert ended. Fast friends and hardcore metal fans since 1979, the elderly gentlemen hastily hailed a cab to attend the popular festival and were planning to get back home the same way, hoping that nobody noticed their absence. The nursing home says that they plan to charter a bus with chaperones for next year's concert. All right. Okay. All right. That sounds that sounds plausible. Okay. Yeah. I got you this one now. A six. We're gonna do the. We're gonna continue the theme of older folks. Okay. We won't say. Okay. 
We'll I love say old people. Necessarily, yeah, we'll just say it. We'll just say older folks. I'm not going to say crusty folks. No, I'm not, not crusty. Not the cr- <laughs> turning to dust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, the, like so many olives in a tin. All right. A 69-year-old woman, Carl, waited nearly three days for a bus because, in her own words, she didn't want to risk missing her doctor's appointment. Vivian Debussy of Wheeling, Michigan, was worried about the wintry forecast, stalling her city bus schedule, and as snowfall quickly accumulated, the determined senior decided to commit to waiting in the frigid weather until her bus finally arrived. And it did nearly two and a half days behind schedule due to the 34 inches of snow and ice that continued to pile up over last weekend. When Ms. Debussy showed up for her appointment only 35 minutes late, The receptionist and nurse noticed her iced-over eyebrows and frozen solid (laughs) scarf, but said that the feisty widow otherwise seemed fine as she shocked the office staff with her tale of a most unconventional commute. According to her story, the resourceful widow was able to take refuge in the tiny bus shelter where she bundled up in layers of winter clothing and sustained herself on potato chips, chocolate bars, and Yoo-Hoo drink boxes, her favorite. (laughs) You're so fucking indulgent. <laughs> Temperatures <laughs> plummeted down to the low teens at points during her weight, but Debussy said it was worth it in order to make sure that her arthritis and diabetes medications could be refilled. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's definitely got to be the fake one. I mean, arthritis she... <laughs> and diabetes. <laughs> I can't help it. You're like really. You don't care if you win or lose this game at all. Really you just. You I just, really don't. <laughs> and you know what's really funny? I'll tell you the funniest part of this. And shouts out to our friend Jono, Jono Peck, who over in Australia. I did a show. I did a, one of Jono's podcasts this week, and he. We were talking before we did the show, and he was like, "Dude, I really like the new sequence." But now Jono has a journalism background. And he was like talking to me like, dude, if you really want a full column, this is what you have to do. And, you know, he was giving me all these real like all this well-meaning and actually very good advice about how to just like write in a little more of a journalistic way. And I'm just thinking like, I'm not going to poor Jono. Like, I'm just thinking in my head, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so self-indulgent. Hey, it's your it's very indulgent, but it's your it's your game if you want to write about a. An old woman waiting for two and a half days. Where did she go to the bathroom? That's true. Who knows? Maybe in that little bus shelter. I hope maybe she's she's wearing a diaper. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got it, my friend. You got it. No problem. All right. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for that opening segment. We're very much enjoying it. I guess we'll continue to uh, easily guess which one is real and which one is fake. <laughs> As we as we move forward uh, through the weeks and months to come. All right, Dake, let's talk a little bit about Dracul. Uh, okay. Dracula, 1897, Bram Stoker, British novel. Now, I learned a new word, I guess, or a, a new term when I was researching this, which is the epistola, the epistolary novel. Do you know this oh. this term? No, I don't think so. So I I didn't know this term either. I know what they're talking about when it's described, but I didn't know it actually had a term. It makes sense that it does. But Dracula is a famous epistolary novel, which means that it's a novel that's told 
pretty much entirely through letters, diaries, newspaper clippings. Oh, sure. And stuff like that. Okay. In other words, it's not a, it's not told through someone's perspective. There's not a narrator. It's basically the reader reading whatever Bram Stoker wants to show you to tell you the story in some sort of sequential order. I think it goes from the spring around April or May in the book until like late October, early November, I think. And then there's an epilogue that tells the story several years after that. And it takes place in the 1890s, which is when the book was written. So I learned that term, Dig, but I also learned another term that I didn't know about, which was called which is called invasion literature. And I'd never heard this term either. Did you come across this when you were reading or listening to anything about it? No, I did not. No. So invasion literature is this like Western European movement. I guess that was pretty prominent in the 19th century. And Dracula is considered an invasion novel to a degree. Invasion novels were all of these really fascinating sounding alternate history or future history tellings of specifically from British point of view of like Germans or French or whoever coming over and invading their country and the different novels and pieces of art work works or whatever that would come from that fear, I guess. And in a lot of literal ways, Dracula is an invasion novel. So it's an epistolary novel and it's an invasion novel. Invasion. Invasion. (laughs) Invasion. (laughs) Well, I could see both of those things. Sure. Absolutely. Cool. Good good words. Yeah. So I appreciate uh I think the epistolary novel thing was just on Wikipedia when I was reading about it. I don't know where I got the invasion literature, or the invasion novel stuff from. But, Dig, I'm curious. When did yeah. you first encounter this book, this this 1897 Bram Stoker novel? Because for me, it wasn't something that was familiar until I think that there was a, a movie in the 90s called Bram Stoker's Dracula. Of course. And that made it. And and I guess they were kind of trying, I didn't know this as a kid, but they were trying to differentiate it from other tales of vampires or specifically like Nosferatu and all the older, horror, fucking absolutely horrifying, like <laughs> 20s and 30s. Like there's literally nothing scarier than Nosferatu, the way that that particular character oh, looks. So, but it's so good. I guess they were trying to center this 90s film in Bram Stoker's uh, uh, actual lore as opposed to all the ways that it's spun off uh, since then in vampire lore and stuff. But do you, do you remember when you first encountered this story outside of like where you and I both base it so deeply, which is in Castlevania. Of course, where do you uh, we'll remember get, we'll get to that? Yeah, yeah you know, well, you know, what's funny about it first, Kyle, that 1992, I believe Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, the movie. Do you know why that holds? Do you remember why that holds special meaning for us, for, for you and I in particular? I don't, I don't know. That is the movie. That is the VHS tape buried in the backyard of the old house. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, the knockback slash Moriarty story comes full circle. And, yes, we will be uncovering. We will be unearthing that VHS tape. But that's what's funny. That was one of the first things I thought about when you told me that we were going to be reviewing the novel. I was like, oh, man, that's going to play so well into the story of talking about the videotape again. And you know what's funny? I never even watched it. I, I don't know what the hell was going on with that whole story about that. That whole story is so strange. <laughs> well, that's it's, even it's, the. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's even the that's even the, the whipped topping on top of the ice cream sundae is that I never even watched it. I never even watched it. I had it for months. Never watched it. Paranoid about the late fees. Buried it in the backyard. That yeah, was the that's, story with that film. That's what's so interesting about it is that you buried that tape. That's the tape that you buried underground as if. It was from the novel itself, which exactly. has a lot to do with with bodies and coffins and dirt and, yes. all, and all and mold and all these kinds of things. So 
Ironic. Whoa, I forgot about I actually totally forgot about that. I didn't, of course, forget that you buried the tape in the backyard. That's a famous piece of lore, Moriarty lore now, and especially really through is. knockback. But I did forget that it was it was uh, Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Which is, uh, <laughs> yeah, which is so funny. So funny about that. But, and you know, I have since watched the film and many other pieces of, you know, vampire related pop culture books and movies and TV series and games. And we'll talk about all that. But. You know, what's really interesting to me, Kyle, is that even as like an avid English literature student in high school. Now, to go a little further back, I wasn't a big reader. I've probably talked about this on the show at some point in the past, but I wasn't a really big reader in elementary school and junior high school. I didn't really like to read. And then in high school, through the advent, I guess, of discovering writing, I sort of took a backtrack on reading and kind of discovered reading and sort of the joys of reading and got really, really into reading everything from novels to comic books, every source of reading material I loved, especially since I, you know, it was an advanced placement English. I was in AP English. We talked about that on the show before. And with the, you know, with Miss Parry coming into our lives, who was our English teacher, colonized English teacher in high school. And her introducing me to and sort of rekindling my love of fiction and books and writing and all that kind of stuff. But the funny thing is, even through a year or two of AP English, I never read this book. And I had never read this book before I read it to do the show, which is really interesting because we read all sorts of things in AP English from classic literature to more contemporary stuff to sci-fi and we even read some horror stuff. You know what? We read, you know, Frankenstein, for instance. So it's really interesting that I never actually opened this book, especially because of all the pop culture, vampire slash horror related things that, of course, this book inspired. And, you know, how much of this book seeped into all those pop culture and culture things we love, dating all the way back to what Colin was already saying from Nosferatu all the way through, you know, whatever we're into, the the Twilight films, the Castlevania movies, all the Castlevania uh, games, rather, and all of the vampire stuff that I'm sure we'll touch on later on. But I never read it. So it was nice to be able to, in the last couple of weeks, read this, finally sit down, digest this novel, and even get into some sort of literary critique about it, get behind, you know, some of the stuff. And before I forget to mention... Just a little aside, right off the bat. See what I did there? <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. But I love the name Bram. I love that name, dude. That name is so cool. And I have to say, I didn't realize it was short for Abraham until I heard some sort of literary criticism. I don't know where I heard it. If it was on YouTube or I found it somewhere else. But that Bram was short for Abraham, which I didn't realize. But I love that name. And how cool of a name would that be for your first son, Kyle? I don't know if it would work for a daughter, but well, because I, I, it could, you're it, such a it great lover of Castlevania and the vampire, especially through Castlevania. You know, <laughs> that's 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 such a through line through this going to be through this whole episode. But oh, definitely. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah. So I never read it before. Now, when did you right. first read this book? Did you go? Did you read this book when you were young, much younger? No. As far as I remember, I encountered it for the first time either in college or in my early 20s when I was out of college, it's kind of funny how his time passes by. Like, it's not that long ago. And I'm like, I, I don't know, like, when I first encountered it. I want to say that I bought it, which is also strange because you remember so many specific things, but I, I feel like I remember buying it from a Barnes & Noble 
in the Prudential Center at Northeastern. And I don't know where that copy is anymore, but people know like when a book goes out of its of its trademark period or whatever, a book can be re- like Bram Stoker's Dracula is just part of the public domain. Now, you can literally like sell the book if you wanted to. As far as I understand, like you could literally print versions of this out and just right. sell it and sell it right. yourself if you want. Right. Right. So I say that just because if you buy like older books, I, I only thought of this because I feel like I bought it at the same time that I bought Walden uh, by Thoreau. And okay. the and I was like really into this existential philosophy thing with Emerson and Thoreau for a little while. So it, I can't really I can't really circle the square, as they say with them. So I, I kind of fell uh, fell off with them. But. I say that only because the Thoreau version or the Thoreau book, too, was one of those like Barnes and Noble style books or whatever, where you can it's in the public domain and you pay you literally pay like four dollars for it. And it has like someone wrote like a forward to it or whatever. And then it's just the book itself. So it's like free money, basically, for them. That's, that's so funny. That's how it works. You're right. With Dracula, the version I have now that I've not even read all the way through this particular version. I mean, they're all the same, I think, is is a Dover Books version that I bought on Amazon. So if people are interested in buying a cheap paperback version of the book, I think I got it for like five bucks or something like that. Like not uh, probably about a year ago. And I read so about halfway it. through it and then I stopped reading it. And then I, st- I read about halfway through it again when we were preparing for this. And to, to me, I, I feel like this book is so seminal working its way for me backwards. And I think it's the same way for you, too. What's funny reading this book, and I think what's funny reading specifically, as I said earlier, the first 50 pages of it or so, which is Jonathan Harker, a lawyer, or what they call in the book, a solicitor, what they call in Britain, a solicitor, going sure. to Transylvania and Eastern Europe to conduct real estate business with this Count Dracula. That's how this all begins or whatever. It's funny how it all works backwards for me when you listen or what, you know, I'm not listening to it, but I guess if you listen to it on uh, the book on tape or whatever, but. When you read all the ways that everything's described, the way the landscapes describe the people, the religion, Count Dracula himself, his castle, the surroundings, all that kind of stuff. It's like, holy shit. Like, it's it's not only Castlevania. I mean, it is Castlevania. This is Castlevania. This is where it, it came is. from. I mean, clearly, yeah. as clear as the day, as clear as the day is long, this is where <laughs> Castlevania came from. And you just can see it. I wrote this on my notes specifically when I was reading there's a p- part in Simon's Quest, Castlevania 2, where you're crossing these these like wa- these water stages on the way to a mansion or whatever in the game. We could talk deeply more deeply about Castlevania specifically later, but they specifically use these blue and purple colors in the sky over these mountains and with trees in the foreground. And this specific scene is described in the book. If you go and look at it, I'm like, I'm wondering... It's the Carpathian Mountains in Castlevania or in uh, Dracula, right. rather. Right. And that's right. kind of where you're going in Eastern Europe, like Romania and Slovakia and all, Czechoslovakia and all these kind of places. So it's funny. I'm, I was look. I, I just can see Castlevania games. I'm like like a savant. I can see them in my mind, like perfectly, like screen for screen. Uh, these early Castlevania games. And I'm like, geez, this is straight out of there. And then you and then you realize like Castlevania 3's first couple stages take place in a town called Wallachia, which is where this the book talks about going through there. That's one of the stops Harker makes on his way to Dracula's castle. So you realize that while there's this vampire war in Eastern Europe, in Romania and the Balkans and all these kinds of places going back hundreds of years, many hundreds of years, you realize that it started in a way, in a seminal way with Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. And without that, 
there would be no Castlevania. And that's kind of, it was kind of startling to me realizing that in my 20s because I, I went for such a long time being so into the lore and the timelines and the Belmont family and all of this kind of stuff. And then you realize that it's just all taken in some way from this book. And it's awesome. I love it. It's incredible. I know. It was cool. I mean, it's almost cool that we discovered it that way. Or at least I could speak for myself, Kyle. Like, it was almost nice to kind of explore it in this order. In other words, to explore and be into and be exposed to some of those iconic pop culture pieces of horror and gothic vampire fiction first, like Castlevania or Interview with the Vampire or Let the Right One In, which hopefully we'll be able to talk about a little later on, or From Dusk Till Dawn or some of the vampire, various vampire anime like Vampire Hunter D and stuff like that, and kind of see because then now that you discover the novel, you discover the source. Now you're like, oh, they got that from the, you know, they, they get so much from this novel. And not only do they pick, sort of cherry pick things, you know, different elements from the novel, but also how they take things from the novel and then change it to suit their own stories or their own, you know, those later works of fiction where they sort of embellish and change things and grow things and evolve things and make it even cooler in some cases. So it was kind of cool to discover the novel later and sort of backtrack that way. I kind of like to go out of sequence that way. It was kind of fun to do that. And finally be like, okay, this is, all right, so this is the great grandpappy of all of this that came later. You know, just talk, just think about like the Twilight films. Oh, yeah, and, you know, definitely. I mean, it's it's incredible. So I really, it was really fun to, you know, I, I don't think, I will say, I don't think I went 10 minutes without having some sort of image of a Castlevania game in my mind, though. You know, we're so steeped in that. You and I are so steeped in that. So that was f- particularly fun. Definitely, even the way Castlevania games always or typically end with the castle going back into the ground and like crumbling. That was that was the original ending of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is fucking nuts. Like, I don't I don't even understand. Like, (laughs) like it's it's everything. And you just don't maybe it's again, we talk about this on Sacred Symbols and you and I have talked about this in the past with Japanese development. Castlevania is a Japanese franchise with few exceptions. With Japanese development, I feel like a lot of secrets and a lot of stories and all that are told more endemic to that nation and to that nation's media and and becomes kind of part of their consciousness, like where we don't really hear those stories. And it's surprising, like I covered Konami, I covered Castlevania games and they didn't really like me very much because I wasn't into the Castlevania games they were making at that time. But you just never hear this invoked. And I don't know if it's because they want to make it seem like it's something original or if they really don't feel like players of games are sophisticated enough or readers or whatever where they, they couldn't appreciate the parallels because I'll tell you right now if you're listening to this and you're listening to Dig and I talk about this and you're a Castlevania fan of some in some sense whether you're an old school NES fan or you're a Symphony of the Night fan in the Metroidvania games or whatever the case might be like you got to read this book because you'll appreciate it so much and yeah, you would think that they would have just pushed that at some point and been like hey like we really took a lot of inspiration from from Dracula, like from Bram Stoker's Dracula, of course we did. And here are all the right. things that come from it. And you really have to, like I said, work your way backwards, like you said, kind of going out of order in order to really appreciate it. So hopefully we can at least turn people on to the to the realistic nature of this book in terms of not only grounding Dracula's lore, but being like almost kind of a realistic feeling version of the Castlevania story, which is cool because yes. Castlevania is obviously really campy. And I don't, I don't think that this game, I don't know that you can really accuse this book of being campy, which is kind of interesting. Because it you think is. that it would be, 
you know? It is. And especially if you think of it, and we'll talk about this more, especially if you examine it in the time, in those Victorian time that it was released, you think about the Victorian age. And I want to get much more into that later on if we can, if we have time. But, you know, I almost think of the Victorian age as very similar to the American 1950s. It was just, a, you know, a time of elegance. People were demure. You know, it was gentlemen. And, you know, it was a lot. It was suppressed. Everything, you know, was suppressed. It was suppressed sexuality, suppressed debauchery. And I always think of that. If you think about this novel in terms of when it came out, it was pretty racy stuff. And it was pretty, not that it was the only one or the first one, certainly, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of that yet. So even if you think of this novel in context, it holds up really well, even in a historical context, which I think is, which I think is really cool. And it's like Colin said, it's very accessible. It's very easy to get a hold of. It's cheap. And it's really, yeah, it's almost essential, I would say. I'm kind of ashamed that I waited this long, but I didn't realize how, how much I would enjoy it, you know, especially if not being a particular horror buff. I don't love horror. I don't, you know, particularly love horror or anything. I don't really, I'm not in, it's not my favorite genre. But this book, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the hell out of it. No pun. I'm, yeah, I'm super happy to hear that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Can't take it anymore. I know, it's pretty bad. <laughs> and I, I think the book is where, is good where it matters. I think most too, which is in the beginning, because I think that once you become, I think that it's such a page turner as it begins and as Harker goes to Transylvania and then gets caught there and and can't leave that if you're invested by a third of the way through the book, you're obviously going to see it through to the end because there are entire characters and schemes and all these kinds of things that are not revealed until like halfway through the book or more, which is kind of neat, too, including uh, the aforementioned Van Helsing, who you don't hear anything about for like the first half or so of the book until he's called in when uh, there's a sickness that his expertise might be useful to diagnose. But basically to frame the story as it is in the book for people, Jonathan Harker, like we said, a solicitor, he's acting as a proxy for his uh, ill boss, his ill boss, he's ill and he's fat. (laughs) Peter Hawkins. Peter Hawkins is a real estate magnate of some sort, I guess. And he is working out this real estate deal with this rich Eastern European Boyar, almost, uh, or Boyer, if you want to say it that way. And I took enough Russian history in college to know uh, the Boyers were like a, a a line of nobility, and right. but they were nobility in a different way. When when you talk about the Boyers, you often think about like Peter the Great, which was a couple hundred years before this, but like how they still wore huge beards, and Peter the Great like taxed their beards to make them more European, and built a city, Saint Petersburg, which was the window to the West, as they called it, and stuff. What's interesting about this book and the intro to the book, Dig, and I think that this is somewhat obvious, although maybe it's up to interpretation, is that as Harker goes from west to east, he starts seeing fewer and fewer things that are familiar to him because the world is changing around him so rapidly. And that reflects reality. When Dracula was written and released in the 1890s, serfdom, the idea of serfdom, like manorialism, was only outlawed in Russia for 50 years when this book came out. Not even, you know, I think it was Alexander the second czar Alexander the second that outlawed it in the 1850s. So this is a really, really different society at this point. And that, of course, leads later to the 1905 and the 19-teens Russian revolutions and czar czar Nicholas II's abdication and eventual execution. This all actually happens before that, which is cool and written and released before that. But this is the time that I think encapsulates what you're saying, the Victorian Edwardian later on Edwardian 
kind of realities of Britain and the West and even the United States. And as we get into the, the teens, the roaring 20s and all those kinds of things a little later on. And then this kind of part of the world that is steeped in Orthodox Christianity, that is steeped in mysticism, relics, uh, spirituality, and witches and warlocks and warcraft and or war, I was gonna say warcraft. Well, you could say that, and uh, and all of those <laughs> kinds later, of things. War, well, yeah, war. You know, they love warcraft in in Eastern Europe. We, I guess we could say warcraft with a little w since that is a real word. But they're yeah, into yeah. all of these kinds of things, and it's peasantry, it's backwardsness, it's quaint, it's dangerous. And what's so cool about Harker's journey to the castle, which happens pretty quickly, almost frustratingly quickly, which makes a lot of sense because he's it's not a novelist telling the story through a narrator. It's him regaling us through his journal. So it it obviously moved quickly at this point. But to me, I, I, I just love how it represents so keenly the stark difference between Western Europe and Eastern Europe at this time. And I know that that's one of the themes and that's one of the themes of these invasion novels, like I said earlier. But did any of that stick out to you about how the real his reality it was always real to him even though the reality of it was changing as they went from west to east because he was losing grip with what was familiar to him but this is real right. I mean, this was realistically what was happening what did you think of all that in the beginning of the book i loved it it's so pronounced in the book as his you know his reality is literally changing as the environment changes as the atmosphere changes the people that he's meeting become different and strange their customs are different they're doing things that are they're wearing and doing things and saying things and even eating things that are different to him. So yeah, he's literally stepping out of his world. He's literally stepping out of like modern society at that time, you know, London, modern day London of the Victorian age, late Victorian age. And he's stepping into, I don't want to say a a more primitive or backwards world, but just a world that he's very unfamiliar with. And that really lends to the anxiety and the dread and yeah, just the tension, you know, just before before he even realizes that he is a prisoner of this enigmatic and seemingly dangerous man, even before that, you know, it's becoming it's really it's a there's great foreboding with, you know, the people that he various people that he's meeting on his his way and how he can't really understand what they're saying necessarily many of the you know, much of the time and how they're crossing themselves and you know, when he says certain things, it's really, really wonderful the way it plays out, even though it's not, you know, it's not a traditional narrative. It's told through the letters and the journal entries and the diary entries and the ship blog and all that kind of stuff. But it still works. It, the drama still works. You know, there's great drama. And I love, you know, besides the atmosphere and the characters, that's what I love in, in this book is the drama, you know, just the raw, what be, what ends up being you know, happening in the in the book is that it becomes a, a raw battle of good versus evil. And this is a great setup. I, lo- I love the Harker part. Now that I'm thinking about it, you know, later on, there's more action. You meet more characters. There's more detail to get lost in. But I love the beginning of the book because it's simple. It's just one man's journey to a mysterious place. And what ends up happening is not what he, you know, is far from what he thinks he's doing there and far from what he thinks is going to happen. And I love that. So much fun. It's really cool, too. Yeah. About how everyone Dracula's evil is so well known in this area. See, this is what what's so fascinating about it and about the backwardsness and the lack of even an ability from this area to send letters reliably or telegraph anyone, which was a common thing. I think there are even some telegraphs in the in the novel itself. But you know, along with the journal entries and all those kinds of things. Right. It's interesting that 
like you said, he can't understand these Roman, you know, the Romanians and, and gypsies and all these different people that he runs into. But he knows something's wrong and they know that he's walking into a trap. That's how well known this is. Later on, you meet some like Turkish sort of like Cossack characters that are working on behalf of Dracula and how they like are totally willing to sell Harker out to Dracula. Like for, like they, they they don't even consider dealing with Harker at all because he this guy is so dangerous that right. even in, in the numbers that they're representing themselves in, they really seem to have no purpose or point but to uh, deal with Dracula because you find out later, even when Harker is like being brought on these various trips, like I think he's on a railroad and then he's on like a horseback and then he goes to these various towns. And then eventually he's picked up by this mysterious like horse and carriage that ends up being driven by Dracula himself. You don't know that at the time, but it's like no one will even work with him. He has no servants in his house. That's something that Harker doesn't or in in the castle. That's something Harker doesn't figure out for a few days as, Dracula is basically he I, I think actually he finds Dracula like making his bed or something like that, which is how he figures out that there's no people around at all. Right. There's no one. Right. And I love that. I just I, because it's not like he goes through like a vortex or something like some sort of warp into another world. And a, what's so cool about this book, like I said earlier, is the how grounded it is and how it doesn't particularly come off as campy. Because during this Victorian era in the turn of the century, 19th and the 20th century, there really was a divide, a cultural divide that would that could realistically like a dude could get lost and no one's going to find out what happened to him, especially if he's in the fucking Carpathian Mountains and he's from London. No one's right. ever going to hear from this guy again. It's, so it's totally believable, you know, and it is. So that's what I love about it. But obviously we meet Count Dracula at this point and I love the way Bram Stoker writes him through Harker's journal. And it's funny, man, when I read things, I, I guess I rep- I realized this recently. I think when I was reading The Road I, again for our novel or for our podcast about The Road, I was realizing that I was reading the same stuff that I'd already read several times and that you see it in your mind's eye the same exact way over and over again. And when I was reading the sequence when Dracula, you did the quote earlier when Dracula basically says, like, come in on your own on your own regard or whatever the fuck he says. Right, what is right. the do you, do you have it written down that quote? It's yeah, a great quote. Enter freely and of your own will. Right, and of your own will, which I guess I, I always interpreted that as like the curse doesn't work on someone who's brought in as a prisoner and, and then he's kept a prisoner once he kind of walks through the threshold. I don't know if that's really true or not, but when yeah, I was yeah, when when they were sense. when they were describing him opening this impossibly heavy door and going and eating, you know, I will not sup tonight, you know, and and like going and. <laughs> having dinner and like being in a library and he's like smoking and all those kinds of things. It's really interesting because I see it the same exact way that I used to see it in my head. It's not represented in some different way. In other words, it's cool that these things are drawn through our minds and we see them through our mind's eye the first time. And then that's the way you see it forever. And even stuff with Lord of the Rings, which was kind of ruined by the the Jackson movies in terms of imagery. I still actually do see the Hobbit specifically as the way I saw it when I first read it. So I guess those are always the things that happen to us if we read a book multiple times or are familiar with a a work multiple times. But how do you make out the different imagery of the castle itself? Because it's so cold and gray and tall and sharp and and nonlinear in some way and and all the rooms and the locked doors. What's your interpretation of uh, Dracula's Carpathian castle? Well, you know, Kyle, first of all, it's so funny that you brought up Lord of the Rings because I have some... Pa- it's so weird that you said that because I have... It's like uh, great minds because I have some parallels that I, made me think of Lord of the Rings later on when we talk about the Van Helsing character in particular. But the castle 
is so cool. And it was one of the parts that I was looking forward to the most, of course, again, talking about where, you know, one in particular piece of vampire fiction that we love in pop culture, of course, the Castlevania games, where the castle, the environment itself, the building, the structures, the surroundings, that's the some of the main characters of that particular telling of that story. So I was really looking forward to seeing how they would portray Dracula's castle. And I love the fact that what you already said was that Dracula has no servants, but Jonathan Harker's being waited on hand and foot. You know, his 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 bed's being made. He's getting served, you know, all this delicious food and dinner and breakfast and hot coffee. And apparently he realizes at a certain point that there isn't a single servant in the place. And Dracula being of this nobility, it's very strange. It's almost like all this stuff is getting done magically, which it is. And it's spooky. It's quite spooky. Not only that, but I love the way to describe the sort of the gothic nature of the place and how how dramatic everything is with the furniture and how beautiful everything is and how, you know, everything is so fancy and it's and but the thing is about it that it's it's old. It's not up to date as as long, you know, as insofar as like a modern day Londoner would be accustomed to a furnished a beautiful furnished house or a furnished apartment it's the you know the obviously all the decor and all the furniture is is ancient and you know it's all this wrought iron and oak and everything's very heavy and very severe and i love that i love that you know you could really just see that it's even the architecture and the way things look in the lines even from a visual standpoint everything is so different from what he's used to in you know back in london and, you know, just how cold it feels, how cold everything feels. And the it even feels like the color at some at a certain point in the novel, it's very pronounced. He gets there by carriage. You sort of ascertain that it was Dracula that, you know, took him on his journey. And a lot of crazy things happen with the blue flames. And, you know, at a certain point, Drac- you see Dracula commanding the wolves and he's actually, you know, it's crazy. Who is this man? He's like commanding wild, this, you know, pack of wild animals. All this crazy stuff is happening. And then there's a very pronounced delineation the next morning where you feel like you're reading and there's not necessarily a description of this, but you feel like the color palette has changed. You feel like everything aesthetic is different now. And that comes with being in the castle and being a prisoner of the castle. And not to mention that we haven't gotten to this far yet, but all the creepy things that happens, not only with Dracula in the castle, but other apparent inhabitants of the castle that we'll talk about in Dracula's, you know, wives slash slaves slash uh, what do they call them? The mysterious women or the sirens or whatever they call. Right. So it's really, really you know there's there's so much to say about that that setting what struck you in particular with the setting Kyle, of the, of the castle because i know that's super important to you for you know especially thinking about the castlevania games oh my god i mean it's it's the isolation of the castle that the castle's a character in castlevania and and i think that in in the book it, it, in dracula and by the way it's worth noting dracula takes place in the castlevania lore which is really interesting and we could talk about that a little later too which i didn't know until more recently yeah and i just read so that. like so the events of, of dracula the bram stoker 1897 novel actually ties into kind of a side story 
with the son of some characters in the book and whatever. We can talk about that in a little while. But yeah, it's the isolation and and it's the imagery that, again, is so parallel to Castlevania. When you think about Castlevania, you do think about those sharpness, the sharp edges and the tall towers and maybe buttresses and cathedrals and, uh, you know, these these towers and these spires and all these kinds of things. And my favorite piece of imagery of a Castlevania castle going all the way back to when I was a little kid were the little turrets that and towers that kind of like peel off in supernatural ways from the castle. They have like no support structure at all. So it's just like it's usually like kind of represented as like where Dracula is in the castle. And I always loved that. It's the staircases leading up to his room of this famous Castlevania imagery. But I got to say, too, Dave, because you, you really brought this into my mind that, like, there's a day-night cycle in Harker's, like, journal entries where he dissipates the tension to such a degree where you're like, is this guy going to be OK? Now, he ends yeah. up being OK in the end. But, like, you you kind of start to question. He does. Stoker does such a nice job of of dissipating and letting the steam out of the pot over and over and over again, that you kind of become like schizophrenic as you're reading the book, because you really don't know like how dangerous is this situation. And then like, so like you're reading a journal entry and, and then like everything seems fine. And then you flip the page to the next journal entry and, it, and it, it's like something horrifying has happened and he's recalling and recounting it all. And thank God, by the way, Harker's such a fastidious diary writer. Oh my oh, God, man. we would have oh. we would have nothing to say. I mean, and, and I, I, I do like how I do like how Stoker said like describes in the book how because it doesn't really make any sense. Like, why is this guy fastidiously writing this journal? And <laughs> like when he's like in this horrible situation and has no prayer of even getting this stuff out, and he kind of does explain it away, saying like this kind of cools his nerves and stuff like that as he's trying to figure yes, out his next therapy, move, which is kind of right. cool. But yeah. it's. The day-night cycle that I mentioned earlier is also interesting because it reminds me a lot of what a horrible night to have a curse and yes. Castlevania 2 and, and how the day cuts the danger and the night heightens the danger. And again, I, I can't help but wonder, I'm, and I'm not saying Simon's Quest is the first game to have a day-night cycle, but it's one of the first prominent games to have one. And I, I can't help but wonder if that came from that same thematic approach that you see in Stoker's novel. I don't really know, but he brings yeah. the castle alive so much. And and I think that's so important because, like I said, the castle is an important character. And I, I just I love castles and my, my love of castles come from these weird Eastern European rundown boyer fortresses as opposed to Buckingham Palace or something like that. Where I'm like, yes, yeah, or, you know, whatever, uh, Versailles or something like that that are these beautiful or even the Winter Palace in Russia with these beautiful palaces and these castles but they're not really like these cold Iron Age you know fucking well it's not really Iron Age but medieval structures and so that's that's kind of what I take out of it and that's what I love and and I can see everything he describes like the tapestries and the plates and the like you said these oak tables that are probably infinite in their weight and these beds and these these windows that I assume have really thin glass or no glass at all. And he's looking out of the windows from all these different vantage points and not seeing anything. And I think it's except for mountains and, and forest and nothing, no, no glimmers of light. I mean, because he makes note of when the Cossacks or whatever are in are helping Dracula, that there is like some activity at the castle and something being seen for the first time. And you end up finding out that they're basically helping him move these coffins and these and these and this dirt oh, and all these things to so give him good you know, to give him respite when he finally goes to Britain. So 
That's so these crazy. letters, Dig, are being written from Harker to a woman named Mina Murray. Mina's back in England and Mina is Harker's fiance and she's just kind of eagerly waiting for him to get back so they can get married. And th there's a time basically when probably about a quarter of the way through the book or so when the, the book kind of changes and it's no longer about Harker for the time being anymore. And now it's about these two women, Mina and Mina's best friend, Lucy Westenra. And what I love about the, Mina and Lucy's back and forth is that Lucy's story doesn't really seem to be that important. It almost seems to be a MacGuffin in the beginning where he she's talking about how she's being she's being proposed to by these three different men, John Seward, Quincy Morris and Arthur Holmwood. And it's like, who gives a shit about these different characters, but how they all end up playing the part in this later story along with Van Helsing. And I almost described it in my note. I did describe it in my notes day guys. It's very video gamey as well. Their whole connection Seward's kind of the brains. Morris is kind of the brawn and Homewood is is the money or the, right. the, the purse. Right. That's right. But what do you think about the kind of segue back to England, the story of Mina and Lucy and specifically there in this this part of North Yorkshire on the east coast of England or Great Britain? It is England, though, called uh, Whitby. What do you think about this kind of segue? Because this invokes a whole nother set of Castlevania esque sort of imagery for me what oh, dark water and fog midnight blue and navy blue and all those kinds of things even the idea of a ghost ship coming yeah. in i mean there's a whole ghost ship stage in castlevania 3 again can't That's help but right. wonder if that if it's inspired by this as he's getting closer and closer to fighting dracula in that particular game but what do you think about this particular segue and it suddenly becoming about these two women for a little while anyway it's cool. I love that it's a really drastic change to other characters. And I you you know there's a connection because you know that the Mina character is, you know, connected to the Jonathan Har Harker character in that they're, you know, they're fiancéd. They're, you know, Jonathan actually go, we didn't get to this yet, but you know that, that uh, Mina doesn't hear from him for quite some time. And that her best friend Lucy is that, you know, I like that what you already said. You know, you got this great beauty. Uh, she's 19. I think Lu the Lucy character is about 19 years old. She's uh, Mina's best friend. And it's true. You almost get into this other story. It swings the other way where you get into this story surrounding Lucy where she's being courted by these three gentlemen. And it almost seems like, yeah, a distraction or a MacGuffin. It's strange. And it does feel video game because you're meeting all these characters. You're finding out a little bit about them. They're all very different to one another. You got the, you know, Dr. John Seward character. You have the American in the, um, sorry, what's his name again? Quincy Morris is the American. In, Qu in the Quincy yep. character. And then you have the, you know, the one, the suitor who she actually chooses is the, God, there's so many names. It's uh, the Homewood character. The Arthur, it's Arthur Homewood, right? Arthur and Homewood, right. So you have the three, and they're all, the other interesting thing about the Arthur, Quincy, and Dr. Seward characters, the three of them are also friends, even though they're all vying for the love of this great beauty and this great innocent, I guess she's, you know, she's supposed to be sweet and childlike and innocent, the Lucy character. She's virginal and she's very, she's very, very sweet and very, very desirable, but she's very, also very kind and that the, these three personalities are vying for the same woman is actually really interesting. And in that that was one of the things that struck me is like how friendly they are, all are with one another. And 
you're meeting so many characters too and so many personalities. And I'm not sure why I was so drawn into the characters in the book. I think they are good characters. I'm not I'm still not sure if they were fleshed out enough for my taste in the end or if I wanted to I wanted to get to know these characters even better. I think we get to know enough for them to serve their specific ends in the story, but I think I wanted to know probably was left wanting a little bit as far as like knowing the ins and outs of these characters, specifically the Quincy character. And, you know, he's sort of the Texan cowboy come to England and find out a little bit, little bit, maybe even a little bit more about his background and trying to, you know, trying to learn more about the characters. But I loved meeting the characters and the Mina character also. She, you know, you, you know very early on, she's very intelligent, very loyal. She's very loyal to her fiance. She's worried about him, obviously, also. And everything that plays out in this section of the book, which I think, and you're kind of wondering at this point too, like how they're going to tie the two seemingly disparate bits of the book together, which is really makes for some interesting reading too. Did I miss anything there? Did I miss any characters? No, I didn't miss any characters. No, you didn't did miss I? any characters. The only other okay. character we learn about at this time a little bit is Renfield, who we'll talk about ah, a, a little bit later. Renfield is basically psychologically insane and, and, John Seward, Dr. John Seward, the character, one of Lucy's quarters is uh, basically a psychiatrist at a, at a mental facility where this guy Renfield is. And you kind of are introduced to him at this time. And what you basically realize about Renfield is that Renfield is the view that Seward and his colleagues here or not colleagues, but peers, uh, Morris yeah. and Holmwood kind of get a view into what Dracula is doing by manipulating this guy Renfield in pretty si- in a pretty sick way, basically. And almost an it's almost like a dark. You can kind of see where. Stoker gets the inspiration to write about Renfield. It's almost a Darwinian, you know, survival of the fittest chain that they're creating with Renfield's character as he it's like the flies into the spiders, into the birds and the cats and all those kinds of things. And you can totally see, you know, contemporaneous to where this book came from. That's got to be at the tip of everyone's tongues over those last couple of decades as uh, Origin of the Species and all those kind of things are written are written by great British scientist and naturalist naturalist uh, sure. Charles Darwin so yeah you didn't really miss anything there at all I don't think and it's funny because this there are a couple other characters like you meet this old man that's kind of telling them stories and scaring them and there's a lot of really awesome visual acuity there with that particular scene because you can see how this old man this old hardened leathery sailor is is talking to these beautiful you know these sexy women probably that they probably don't get very much of and they're you know lucy and mina are kind of vacationing and it is funny though because you you did mention there are a few things that are hard it's hard to thread the needle i think and i don't know if it's because stoker is writing in a removed way from another level because he's not narrating it or having a narrator like an omniscient narrator or whatever telling you everything you need to know it's basically sure he has to justify everything being told to you by being written in a, in a letter, being written in a journal, being written in a newspaper article or whatever. And it's kind of right. difficult. I imagine it sounds like an easy way to write. Again, this epistolary novel or this epistolary novelization seems like an easy approach, like a cop out approach. But it's actually difficult for the very reasons that I think you mentioned, which is that you have to have a justification for telling the audience anything. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. And I think one of the things that is lost in the book as I was going through it again was it, it it is a little confusing why Seward Morris and Holmwood are so friendly with each other. It is a little right. confusing why Mina is so patient with Lucy as she starts 
going through these spells. I mean, you want to be a good friend. You, you're courting people. Sometimes guys go after the same girl. A lot of people have been there when they're younger. And so it's not like that unusual, but there are a few things. But it goes back to what you're saying about the Victorian era repression. Everything is under, you know, a layer or two of soul, as it were. People don't want to be too sexual. They want to be too forward. They want to be too rude. They want to be too anything. And so it's hard to say. I mean, you kind of realize that these guys have a real affection for each other and are all going towards the same thing, especially as the book gets wildly violent. But sure. But it is a little interesting. It is a little weird and probably maybe not super realistic because a lot of even Victorian fiction and stuff like that, you can see that even if there's like a lot of passive aggressive shit going on and a lot of other fiction and you don't really see too much of that in this. So it's it's comfortably written in the sense that you don't have to worry about people's relationships with each other too much, even when Lucy is going on and on about Seward, Morris and Holmwood all asking her to marry marry her and and she even like labors the point belabors the point by going over multiple letters and like sending the letter after telling her uh, telling me about the first two and everything it's really interesting but it is but nonetheless like it's all with purpose which i think is is pretty neat and basically from here and i'll kick it back to you but basically from here the book basically becomes this tale about how seward dr john seward is concerned about Lucy, who's his wife or his fiance, who's best friends with Mina. Mina is engaged to Jonathan Harker, who's the guy who's lost at the van- at Dracula's castle. So basically what you're realizing right. at this point is everyone is somehow interconnected and through some work and, and we'll get Van Helsing in at this point. Van Helsing is basically kind of like a mentor figure and a, and a professorial figure to John Seward. He's kind of called in because John can't figure out what's wrong with Lucy. Lucy is not well. And and it's Van Helsing that figures out that this has to do with Dracula and vampirism and all these kinds of things. But before we get to that point, of course, yeah. uh, we have to kind of work in back into this, this Renfield character. Now, Dagan, it's so interesting because it wasn't, I don't know if it was ever obvious to me until I started reading the book again and, and kind of reading about the book, but some of John Seward's notes about Renfield are actually writings from phonograph recordings or what he purported to make as phonograph recordings in 1897 okay. and how sophisticated and scientific that was. But it's cool because that is that might be the origin of the audio recording, which is a famous way to tell stories in video games, especially, especially games like we've talked about with like Bioshock and stuff, which are recorded on these like reel to reels. And it sounds so ridiculous in the game. And in a lot of times it is. It's considered like a pretty huge cop out in a lot of games to have these audio recordings. Like, why is anyone recording themselves speaking into these things. But actually, some of John Seward's transcriptions are from phonograph recordings of, that he took when he was kind of going over Renfield's condition and following Renfield out and calling security on Renfield and all these kinds of things and him like eating the birds alive and all that. So it's so great. So t- let's talk a little bit about how the, the story segues from this point. What do you think about Renfield and and as Van, Hel- Van Helsing is called in from by John Seward to kind of look into this problem with Lucy? This is kind of when it becomes a real horror novel, full stop. And I'm curious, like, what you think of this particular segue? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, what's funny about the Renfield character is that he really he really does bring the horror on full scale. And he sort of becomes, at, at a certain point in the book, not too long after we meet him, he sort of becomes a device, if we're paying attention, to understand a little bit more about Dracula. Because obviously, as it turns out, spoiler alert, he's a, a servant 
in many regards to Dracula and sort of a, a disciple and a loyal assistant that who's turns out that he's under Dracula's control. He's sort of basically operating as a sort of a slave and a helper to Dracula, even though he is imprisoned in this asylum under Dr. Seward's, you know, under Dr. Seward's control, you know, you know, as such, or at least underneath his, his watchful eye. And, you know, he's this eccentric, creepy lunatic character who's sort of wiry and he's muttering and half the time he's saying things that they don't really understand what he's saying and you know he's doing this whole thing with eating you know he's capturing flies and spiders and what is it is it frogs and birds uh no i think it's i think it goes flies spiders spiders and then birds and then and then he seeks a cat and then cats Right. Right. And then cats. Right. So he's and he's trying to capture, you know, he's got this whole thing where they understand eventually that he's trying to basically, you know, he's saying that he wants to ingest all these creatures for certain sort of, you know, whatever magical things to take place and everything. And, you know, he's this seemingly tortured soul. He's an interesting character because he's repulsive. And at the same time, at certain points of the book, you feel sympathy for him. And we won't talk about his turn at the end of the book yet, but. Um, we'll save that for later. But even though he's a patient of Seward's, it seems like, you know, Dr. Seward and his people only have so much control over him. And he's really he's really an interesting character because of how different he is from the other characters in the book. You know, he's he's almost an animal himself. He's almost presented as an animal himself in many ways. And then when it turns out later on that Dracula has been visiting him, Dracula has been sort of having communication with him he's been and you know he's been sort of commiserating he's been sort of associating with Dracula over all this time and I believe if I'm not mistaken Kyle I believe it's when we find out that one very key thing about Dracula you know you get to learn and we'll talk about this at a certain point hopefully you get to learn everything about Dracula insofar as his strengths and his weaknesses And I think through the Renfield character, we sort of gain the understanding that Dracula could only enter a domicile. He can only enter a building or a structure if he's invited in. So that was one thing where he would often come, Dracula would often come to the asylum in bat form. And whenever Renfield was in the clear, he could then let Dracula in. Which is another, that was a really interesting thing that I never knew. You know, there's so many things over the years through, you know, vampire and horror fiction that we know about the vampire. We know about the oak steak. We know about the garlic cloves and the laurels and the crucifix and, you know, the communion wafers and all that kind of stuff. But we never, I never knew about that. I I at least never knew about that that was a rule for Dracula. And it sort of harkens back to that line of, you know, what Dracula says to people when they visit him. And I wonder how much it has to do with that as far as, you know, the enter freely and of your own will thing. So that seems to actually go back to that line where you kind of learn that through Renfield that he's got to be sort of invited into in order to do his do his evil, do his evil thing. So what else? What else about Renfield do is is important to tell our beloved listeners? Well, I think one of the interesting things from the real world about Renfield that's that's fascinating to me, although apparently clinical vampirism, the psychiatric term or psychological term of people being vampires in real life or whatever, thinking they're vampires in real life is not really yeah. an actionable thing very often that 
and you probably saw this in your research that the the whole clinical vampirism idea is called Renfield's disease or Renfield syndrome. Oh and, no, I didn't know that. Wow. And this like for people that want to drink blood the blood of other humans or whatever the case might be, which apparently is is seldom encountered in psychiatry, but uh, that I thought that was really interesting and apparently it's more of like a hypothetical thing apparently in the study of psychiatry than than something that's literal 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 yeah I, I think it's Renfield's obvious connection to Seward and then how it kind of sets in the motion these three men's and by three men I mean Seward Morris and Holmwood's aforementioned friendship and affection for one another using Renfield as kind of an instructive tool especially through Seward's instructor Van Helsing and I, I kind of want to throw it back to you about Van Helsing because sure. there's something about when we think about this era, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s into the 20th century, the Victorian era in Britain, but also in the U.S. and other places. I don't know about you, but I think about post-industrial technology. I think about, like we said before, the phonograph. I think about Edison and the light bulb. And I think about Tesla and harnessing electri electrical power. And I think about the Wright brothers. And I think about... Ford and automation and re replaceable parts and all these kinds of things uh, or, you know, whatever the case might be. And Van Helsing represents that to me, a man of science, a man who of learning, a man who of study. And it's cool because he's a he's a bit of a renaissance man, which which I and I love renaissance men. And I don't mean literally from the renaissance. I mean, like he knows how to study. He knows what the research he's his character to me is almost a reflection of Bram Stoker himself in the sense that Bram Stoker apparently did a lot of really deep research into vampire folklore and orthodox relics and Eastern European geography and all these kinds of things that make Dracula readable, even though most of us aren't familiar with Romania or the Carpathian Mountains or anything like that. He did do sure. the legwork, particularly difficult to do in the 1890s, to make, get it all right. And people have traced it backwards to try to figure out like what he read that inspired him so much, both in the realm of fiction and nonfiction, because, again, there are, are other vampire novels that are somewhat relevant, but Dracula being the biggest one. But Van Helsing's so interesting because I think he's a proxy for the time. I think that if you think about 1897, you think about the early 1900s, this is a time of tumultuous change. This is a time of people getting electricity in, in, in their houses. Famously in Downton Abbey, in like the first or second season, they start using electricity and the grandmother like won't even touch it. She's afraid of it. She won't like touch the switches or anything. They don't trust that it works. And... Right. You know, this is the this is the the period of gas where the term gaslighting comes from, which is a which is a term today that comes from the idea of tricking someone into thinking they're crazy. That that term comes from people using gas lamps in their houses, and the and the the kind of constant flow of gas would make them high, and hence the term gaslighting. I and did so I not think, know that. That's really cool. Yeah. So it's interesting that. That, that, that's such a, a fascinating time for me. But you, you also think about London or England in the 1880s and 1890s. This is also a time of dark underbelly shit. Again, the repression. This is like the era sure. of Jack the Ripper. And this is the era of rampant brothels and really poor living conditions and industrial kind of the industrial ravaging of the under society. I mean, this is also what like Oliver Twist and shit is about. So. Th that's an underlying theme in, in that era's British fiction that I think plays through to Van Helsing, even though Van Helsing is kind of an uplifting and intelligent character. So I know you have a great affection for him, but I'm curious what you think. What, what do you think about this Van Helsing character and his inclusion in in the uh, in the book? 
it was really cool to finally meet this character because there's so many iterations of Van Helsing and just, you know, the prototypical vampire slayer character, but especially Van Helsing throughout all the horror and vampire fiction. So it was nice to finally meet the real guy, you know, the guy that everybody's based on. And I think you said it really well, Kyle. He's a renaissance man. You know, this is a guy who's a scientist, a philosopher. He's a metaphysician. He's a doctor. He's a professor. At a certain point, we learn that he has a pretty vast knowledge of rare diseases, which is, I guess, why Dr. John Seward sort of contacts and brings Van Helsing into the fold because, you know, Seward is a pupil and a protege and, you know, of Van Helsing, but also a friend. And when he calls Van Helsing in, he's such an interesting character to me. You know, he's an older man, he's Dutch. He's of Dutch descent, but he often speaks or sometimes speaks in German. And, you know, he's sort of portrayed, as we get to know him, he's sort of portrayed as this ultimate good. But he's also not perfect. He doesn't, he seems a little proud to me. And I don't know if that's the perfect description, but he's proud in in, in that he doesn't divulge a lot of information right away. He, he, throughout the story, it seemed to me that he, he tended to sit on data or on knowledge without sharing initially. And one of the big Lord of the Rings through lines for me and why it made me think of Lord of the story made me think of Lord of the Rings was because Van Helsing made me think of Gandalf in that he seems like he's the character who quickly becomes the leader. Obviously he's very he's the most knowledgeable and he has the most wisdom. He's the oldest. And he's but he's also a little enigmatic a little eccentric. The the team as assembled, the vampire hunters or the good guys who sort of form a you know, sort of form a group against Dracula, they really rely on him and he's irreplaceable, but he comes and goes. And he he leave you know, he reminded me very much of that Gandalf character where it's like you don't want him to go when he leaves, you wonder when he's gonna come back. And he's sort of in and out of the picture and He's off studying and he's he's off gaining knowledge and it really reminded me very much of Gandalf and I loved the character. I once I met Van Helsing, I wanted to be all about him and I start I was sort of left wanting with him because you know certain details and I don't remember how many details are actually revealed in the book and how many I read afterwards about the character. But apparently, he's got a son who has passed away and he has a the Van Helsing character has a particular affection for the Homewood character. And I think that's because Arthur reminds him so much of his deceased son. And it's at a certain point, it's either revealed in the book or it was revealed to me later on that. And I don't remember. And I wish I did, but Van Helsing has a wife who's sort of alive, but she's a shell of herself. Something happened. Some sort of trauma happened. And I always wondered especially because he seems sort of have a vast knowledge of vampire lore that what, what did this guy go through in the past? What battles did he have with the undead or with vampires or evil? When has he crossed paths with this sort of thing before? Does he have a history with this? I wanted to know he was the most compelling character for me and I know that because I wanted to automatically you know how it is when you're reading a piece of fiction you automatically want to jump into that character and learn as much as you can about them and I I immediately wanted to learn all of his history and to see he why you know why he has 
not only this vast knowledge, but also he seems sort of, he's extremely determined to help. And I think that comes out of a good and kind heart, but also he seemed to, I don't know if he was all, it almost seemed, is this guy driven by a vengeance? Is this guy driven by the knowledge of what this, does he have more knowledge of what this evil is actually capable of than the rest of the party? So that's, you know, for me, that's where Van Helsing, uh, that's what he smacks of for me. And I, I, lo- I love the character. I wanted to, I, th- I think I could read about this character all day. I wanted to see him fleshed out even more. But unfortunately, he's just part of a party of characters. So what about you, Kyle? What did you, what did you take away from this character, Professor Abraham Von Helsing? It's interesting because the first time I ever encountered Van Helsing in my life, was the, that name was when I went and saw the movie, which I think is based on... I don't know, book or comic book series, whatever, uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, right. And and he's like one of the characters in that. And he's kind of portrayed as kind of like a straight up vampire hunter in that. He's not really a vampire hunter per se in Dracula. He's more just a, right. a renaissance man or whatever, a learned polymath of some sort. And no, his character is interesting, especially because, like you said, he has a lot of this forbidden knowledge that seems to assist or at least attempt to assist the party. And I like that we're using the term the party because that's, again, another gaming term. But it's true because these guys do seem like a party at this point. They're working collaboratively to tackle this issue that begins with Lucy. And, you know, that's Arthur Holmwood's woman. And it's kind of gruesome because Lucy is identified as Van Hel- by Van Helsing as being afflicted with vampirism. And they do all these blood transfusions and try to do all these, like, th- use all these different relics and all these kinds of things but she ends up kind of succumbing to this vampirism or whatever and the imagery of them putting the crucifix on her to stop her from turning and all this kind of stuff and then she ends up turning anyway and they have to basically fight her almost like a boss fight kind of thing again another video game thing later on it's interesting because that's when the game it's or i keep saying the game that's when the book gets gory and violent and does invoke a lot of the real like when we think about Jack the Ripper, it's not that Jack the Ripper was like one of the first in the in the kind of the journalist age, one of the first serial killers and no one really knows who he is. So there's a lot of interest there. Uh, his violent his crimes were violent. If you read about Jack the Ripper and oh, yeah, they weren't just like murders. And I'm not saying just murder or just rape or whatever the case might be. I mean, murder and rape are terrible to begin with, but he was like dissecting people and taking organs out and doing all sorts of crazy shit to them. It was certain. Right, exactly. Which indicated to a lot of people at the time, I know that he was probably a, a man of science or a learned man. And you kind of see me just bringing that up. You kind of see the other side of Van Helsing in the sense that like, you don't, I don't think Van Helsing was like, it's supposed to be Jack the Ripper or something like that, but you can almost see like, it's that it's similar kind of guy with just a different, <laughs> like a different, uh, ideology, I guess, or whatever the case might be. Someone that knows what sure. he's doing, because when they kill Lucy, when they confront and kill Lucy, Ooh. they s- stick a stake in her heart and cut her head off. Yeah. And then shove, I think, garlic cloves in her mouth. Yeah. And it's like, holy shit. I know. It's so tragic. I mean, this was a sweet, sweet character before she was corrupted. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's 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 sickening, actually. It's it's totally crazy. And so with Lucy kind of out of the way with Van Hel, you know, with the guys kind of confronting Lucy and all of this, Harker, I think, comes back in 
at this point and Harker's kind of brought into the party, basically, yes. if we want to call him that. So I like what that. ends up happening is that Harker has kind of gone crazy himself in Eastern Europe. And it's important to re- re- rewind because there is another unbelievable thing about the book in a, in a sense, even though it's not necessarily always grounded in reality, is that and it's really creepy as well, is that Dracula gives Harker towards the beginning of the book three parchment pieces of parchment paper in which he writes these like post dated letters oh, yes. that Dracula is going to write. And Dracula also uses Harker's clothes to make it seem in these various villages and outposts that are near his castle that he's that Harker's been seen so that people can go as long as humanly possible without having been worried about him. But it is peculiar. I understand Lucy's trying to distract Mina and stuff at this at this uh, seaside town in on Eastern on the eastern end of England and all of this. But it is a little unbelievable that Mina is not more worried about her fiance, later husband. Like he is gone. She's he's writing these really cryptic letters. It's it's kind of cool how they work in that she's like kind of studying shorthand, and so he's writing to her in shorthand, and that's able to kind of circumvent Dracula reading the letters. He talks about Harker in his journal talks about how Dracula gives him these envelopes that are like you can see through basically. Right. So he knows the letters are being broken. And even Dracula even admits to breaking his seal to open one of the letters when he tries to get the Cossacks to yes. help him, which which right, is right. really untoward, like a really untoward thing to do back then and still untoward yeah, today. God. I mean, people don't read that, but so you don't rude. break the seal, the, the wax seal on a letter. You don't do it. It's just considered, you know, uh, improper. But Dracula does it to him anyway. But Harker is brought back in and then kind of the story comes full swing here at this point, because now everyone is able to confront Dracula knowing two things. One, that the real estate gambit that he had been doing was to get his power, his curse, whatever the case might be, out of Eastern Europe, where it seems like, as we said earlier, everyone is familiar with him and no one's really, I don't want to say no one's falling for it, but everyone knows what's going on there. This kind of steeped in Orthodox mysticism. Again, like I said before, so Dracula is looking to get into England so he can spread his curse and satiate his appetite for human blood and so they uncover this because harker now is the first person that and we meet harker first but harker's the first person in in relation to seward morris holmwood and with van helsing and in addition to mina murray he's actually interfaced and many times now with dracula so he knows him and it, it it comes to be that dracula has been shipping these dirt filled coffins and buying different homes through a name, uh, Count DeVille, not Count Dracula. Right. In order to basically give himself these bases, because another piece of vampirism in in stories and in Castlevania and, and in ancillary media is that Dracula can't work in the daylight. So he needs these various places to not only feed, but to hide out. And I, I'm not really quite sure. I, it's probably in the book and I just don't know. I don't remember whatever, but why he needs to be specifically in like a coffin. For instance, when Harker goes and finds him, and again, a lot of Castlevania imagery, he goes and finds him in the castle's cathedral. That's where he, and then he goes under the cathedral and that's where he finds all the coffins. And that's where he first sees Dracula in his sleeping state. And he basically says that like Dracula's eyes are just wide open and he doesn't, he's not really aware that he's there or whatever. So yeah. How do you feel about the culmination of everything when they are finally able to confront Dracula and also what it costs them because someone dies as a result in, in oh, addition absolutely. in addition to Lucy who's already dead I love the Count de Ville thing Kyle I'm really glad you brought that up because it's so insidious 
what Dracula does as far as buying various estates or castles throughout the, you know, throughout the London area, throughout the country, whatever, and has these crates of earth and soil shipped around. And the fact that he has various, the fact, the fact that he has several places to live and that he spreads out these resources and stuff means to me, which is interesting because I don't really get to this too much in the book, means to me that it's extra insidious because he knows he's going to be pursued by somebody. Because if you t- if you talk about you know Dracula lore or vampire lore, this hap- this happens. He go he probably does this every 100, 150 years. And he has to, and he's probably up against, you know, various people trying to put him down, trying to stop him, trying to destroy him, trying to do good. So the fact that he does these things in order to stay one step ahead of his pursuers or his, you know, the various vampire hunters or whatever is actually extra crazy, extra insidious, and actually quite brilliant because he's also portrayed as a very intelligent character. And I love the fact that it sort of motivates a specific quest with our party of heroes having to pursue him. And the earth thing, the the sort of crates, the giant wooden boxes of earth, of soil that Dracula has to sleep in or use to rest and sort of replenish and rejuvenate himself. Oh, I think the book, if I'm not mistaken, I think the book talks about that he needs that specific earth of you know, Romania, of Transylvania, of his estate, Castle Dracula, because that is the soil of his family's heritage. So that's like sacred soil to him. So he need that's the specific soil that he needs. In other words, he couldn't just dig up a bunch of soil in England, in the countryside, and use that. It has to be that specific, sacred, ancient soil that he needs to bed himself in. And the Jonathan Hark, the return of the Jonathan Harker character when we meet him again, you know, it's quite striking because he's this young, you remember, he's this sort of young, sort of jaunty career guy. You know, he's this lawyer going to do a job and, you know, he's uh, happily, be, you know, engaged to this really great woman, very intelligent woman. I think Mina's a school teacher by trade, although it doesn't necessarily play into the story very much. And... We know that Jonathan eventually escapes despite, you know, talking about earlier the I love what Colin said earlier, by the way, about sort of the architectural impossibility of certain parts of the castle with the turrets and the towers and everything. I always love that too. You know, it's extra dynamic. It's sort of those architecturally impossible parts of the castle. You you know, we talk about cat the first three Castlevania games especially. Oh, and and definitely later on with the other games, Symphony of the Night and everything, where you have those really sort of structurally impossible parts of the castle, but they just look cool. They just look really striking and really important, really neat. But, you know, it wouldn't work from an architectural standpoint. But I love the fact that, you know, you sort of have Jonathan escapes Castle Dracula, despite that it's it's perched on this impossibly steep cliff. And you know somehow he escapes, but... When we meet him again now, he's sort of he sort of seems really fragile. You know, he's gray, he's pensive and quiet and introspective. Whatever happened, you know, Dracula's curse or whatever dealings that this man had with Dracula had a real deep-seated effect on him. And I love that you see that in the character. He's sort of a shell of himself and that he has to be sort of be nursed back to health. And I love that 
you know, you could see, even though he didn't go down, he he wasn't attacked necessarily like Lucy. He's able to escape before any of that happens. But just just his exposure to that place and that castle and that you know evil entity in Count Dracula had such an enormous effect on him. And I love that. I, it's so it's such a striking part of the story for me. And now the, you know, sort of the band of heroes, you know, Jonathan and Mina, Van Helsing, Dr. Seward, Quincy, Quincy the Cowboy, and Arthur, you know, they sort of form this conspiracy against Count Dracula. And now it's a mission to, you know, put an end to this evil. Now, Kyle, I have a question for you. And I don't know if I just didn't, I wasn't able to glean this from the, from the text or if I missed something. Dracula's plan to go to, you know, to go from his remote castle to one, you know, this busy Western city. He wants to go to London. And it's obvious why, right? You even think about, um, I even think about a similar theme in a, in a movie that keeps popping into my head, Interview with the Vampire, where they want to go to a place, vampires want to go to a place where they can easily feed. So set yourself up as somebody legitimate get in there and then be the monster you were born to be. Just start eating everybody basically and drinking their blood. But is Dracula just, is he go, is his game to turn everybody undead just because he wants to create like an undead army or just basically leave nobody to contest his will? Or is he simply just going to feed? That's something I didn't know for sure. Like, is there a, a, a larger evil plan rather than just going to, you know, basically him walking into a giant McDonald's? You know, like, is there a bigger evil plan at large or is it he, or is he just going to take care of himself? Yeah, it seemed to me. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it seemed to me. I mean, I don't know Stoker's interpretation of it, but it seems to me that it was him just figuring out like the next way to survive or whatever because you had brought up the the importance of the soil coming from transylvania and from the carpathians i think that that has something to do with you know dracula and and i guess vampirism in eastern europe and the lore that surrounded all that comes from vlad tepes who's i think vlad the third or something like that who was like an old wallachian russian warlord the House of the Dragon, I guess. I think that's where Dracula comes from. I think that's what it means right. in that language. Right. And I think that he was so such a notorious killer in these various local city-state conflicts whenever they were doing these territorial conflicts that they were having and soaked the land with blood that I think that that's the reason why the soil is necessary to bring with him. And I think why ah. the... And I think why the soil... Why I, I think that the, there are 50 coffins and he strews only 49 of them on that from that ship that ghost ship that comes into Whitby I think only 49 of the coffins find their way to various things which is where the, again the, the story gets very video gamey as they go and seek these things out and right. then of course the final stage is this return to Eastern Europe to find the last vestiges of Dracula's soil-based curse as it were or whatever so I don't think I mean, I don't know for sure. And people can write in and correct us. I'm definitely not a scholar on Dracula, but it seems to me that that wasn't there wasn't a grander conquest that was planned. I think it was just like they, they insinuate that he's been doing this for a while and that 
this this is kind of his method or mode of survival. Sure. Like when Harker finds his room for the first time in the castle, all these places are locked up except for he like climbs on this wall. He sees Dracula basically scaling the wall himself. That's when he figures out Dracula is some sort of supernatural entity. Dude, that is the creepiest part of the book for me. When he's doing the lizard walk down the exterior right. stone wall of the castle. It's so creepy. Oh, dude, I, I gave me willies. Give me the willies for sure. <laughs> it's super creepy. And he comes into a room that he describes as Harker describes as empty with the exception of like a, a gold hoard. But the gold is gold from like the Roman Empire. And it's oh, so cool. And all these different things insinuating that he's been doing this for a very, very long time. The, the gold is like covered in dust. I think Harker actually steals some of it, although I don't know. He's that we ancient. Ever... It's an right, ancient. Exactly. Evil. Exactly. Yeah, and so I, I don't know that there's a larger plan than the him to just try to relocate studiously relocate, knowing that Dracula is he has all of these periodicals and books and all these different things that Harker re- re- talks about in his journal and asks like all of these specific questions where he's very learned about this specific area. So I think he was just planning this jump and who knows how many of these different jumps have been planned in the past. I mean, who knows where else he's cropped up in the past? And sure, it's they don't really go into it in the book, as far as I know. I'm sure that there are other spinoffs, but uh, or not literal spinoffs with people writing about this particular uh, strand of vampirism. But it ultimately leads up to them going back to Dracula's castle, as every Castlevania game ends, and <laughs> they right. confront Dracula and and they end up killing him, and the. The cost of this is that Quincy Morris dies. So yes, the yes. two major characters that die in the book are are Lucy Westernra and then or Westernra and then Quincy Morris, the 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 American has the to American. Uh, eat, the American, of course, the fodder has to eat <laughs> shit. But he ends up he's the one that ends up, I think, laying the kind of the killing blow or whatever. And so Quincy dies and. Dracula seems to have been vanquished, as one might say, and the story kind of wraps up at that point. But what do you think about the culmination of of the book and kind of the, the sequence at the end and going back? And it's kind of exciting because Harker is going back into a sequence into an area into into this geography that he's familiar with, but that these other guys aren't. I don't think Van Helsing is even familiar with that. He's studied on it, but he's never seen this stuff for himself. So what do you think about the culmination and the kind of the conclusion? Yeah, I like it. I mean, it's action packed. I love I was really excited to see how the various heroes would play their part at a certain point. They split off a certain part of the party goes after the ship and then a certain part of the party goes to I think they're all going to basically rendezvous at the castle. But a certain uh, a part of the party, most of the party goes to the castle initially. And, you know, they're assailed by some of Dracula's. I don't, you know, some of his mini bosses, shall we say, the three wives, the three uh, brides of Dracula, or they're not called that in the book. What are they called? They're called the what? I know they're referred to as sirens, which really spoke to me because I love Greek mythology. Yeah, the sisters or something like that. The sisters, that's correct. Right. The mysterious sisters or whatever. They're um, eventually uh, killed by Van Helsing on their way. Again, that reminded me of a little mini boss fight. And then, yeah. I think Jonathan and Quincy end up getting the drop on Dracula right before I think right at the, right before it turns like in the the last vestiges of daylight if I'm not mistaken and you know slit his throat 
and you know drive us and what somebody takes a knife to his throat and somebody takes a knife through his heart and then, but Quincy is died you know dies in the battle and it sort of ends it's great the lead up is great everything's great but then it sort of ends anticlimactically I, I guess I expected that you know again you know we're children of the of the video game universe I guess I had, I expected that last boss fight with Dracula to be a little more drawn out if you want to say it. it almost reminds me of the Dracula fight for all you video game nerds, retro game nerds out there. It reminds me of the Dracula fight in Simon's Quest. It's like this whole game led to this fight. You know, it almost felt like that. Right. This awful, this awful two second boss fight. Yeah. It was <laughs> it's ho- like what? So yeah, otherwise, horrible. you know, but besides that, you know, I think it was, I think it was really entertaining. It just, you know, I wanted there to be a little more at the end as far as a payoff with that big Drac fight that we didn't get. And then I lo- I love what we learn in the end. You know, we're not there yet, but because I, I, I want to get your take on the ending, the the final battle, the final uh, the final bit of intrigue and all that kind of stuff. So what what about you? What do you take out of the the last bits of the book where you know the lead up to the final fight? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I I like the idea. <laughs> I, I I guess it's kind of getting funny that we keep bringing it up, but with Castlevania and with Metroidvania specifically, with Simon's Quest and then later Symphony of the Night and its offshoots of like backtracking and going back to where you've been already. Great point. Like where you started kind of. And sure. Which is a, again, a very video game thing to do. And it's cool. Yeah. Quincy's the one that I think like cuts his neck or whatever the case might be and pays the ultimate price at that point. And again, we're brought back into this imagery and we meet the, the Cossacks again and, and all this kind of stuff. And then, yeah, we, we kind of realize that, Everyone kind of lives happily ever after, as far as I know, that that didn't die. So Quincy's dead and Lucy's dead. But Mina and Harker live happily ever after. And I think John Seward remarries. Yes. And yeah, so. Yeah, it, it, it's I guess anticlimactic, but the book is so dark, especially for its time. That I, I can't help but begrudge. I, I guess, well, let me back up and say, I guess I would wonder if it was like a really dark ending, like a really hopeless thing. I, I can't help but wonder, like, would would it be as well received? And would it have been as well received at the time? Because it wasn't like a quick success story, this book. It right. was like kind of a more slow burn. I was reading about how it wasn't really until the films came out and specifically the umbrage that I guess the Stoker family took with the rampant use of this this character basically that they their dad or granddad or what you know husband or whatever created and how they really took a huge problem with that and i was actually reading even more recently that his great grand or great grandson wrote like a sequel like an official sequel to dracula oh I guess, wow i didn't know that which is kind of neat but was it ever published yeah it was published i think in 2009 it has a terrible name i can't think of it right now it's a really bad name oh wow I have to it's look called like that. dracula the undead or something like that okay <laughs> interesting so, yeah, I, I dig it and I like the ending. And it, it, like many games and many books, especially many books, I think, it's, and movies and others, it's about the journey more than the way it ends. It's always difficult to end these things in a satisfying way. But at least most of the heroes and protagonists survive and Dracula is sent back to the, the other realm or whatever and, and kind of dispatched and killed. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the wrap of it. Yeah, Mina, Wilhelmina, and uh, Jonathan have a son that they name Quincy as a send-up, right? To their dead, right. 
to their dead friend. Again, though, I, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but I mean, why are the suitors so cool? The three suitors so cool with each other. Now, it turns out, like Colin said, Doc, you know, Doctor Seward, and I think Arthur too. Uh, Homewood, they they both get married. They both go on and get brides and everything like that. It's all in the in the wrap up. But yeah, I was almost expecting it. Like the rest of the book is pretty. There's nothing else like that in the book where it just seems like they're ignoring something. And I'm just like, why is it so? Again, you know, you talk about the Victorian age, very courtly, very elegant, very gentlemanly. You know, everything's very proper, buttoned up. You know, you're not going to, you know, bring it negative attention to yourself by, you know, I understand that by like, you know, talking shit or acting like a jerk or whatever. But I almost expected at some point in the story for something to pop off, like for some tensions to pop off. But in fact, it goes the other way as the situation becomes more deadly for these people. They, like, love each other, dude. They're, like, totally out for each other. It's, like, it goes the complete opposite direction where I thought it was going to go. It's, like, this band of people, this group of people, like, love each other. There is no, there is zero hard feelings going on here. You know, obviously not with Arthur, but especially with the other two, you would think, like, the jilted lover character. There's none of that. You know, it would have been interesting maybe if Dracula could sort of bring Quincy or Dr. Seward over and be, like, you know, maybe... Maybe come come in my court, you know, come over to my side, you know, type yeah. of thing. It's very strange. It's the only thing that really plays up to me of something being a little unbelievable. But again, maybe not so. Maybe just chalk it up to late Victorian age. You know, the, these people are, you know, nobility and they're they're very proper. They know how to act. They're not going to act the fool. No, no, definitely not. And you know what I'm saying? Just to also just to satiate the Castlevania fans out there that want to know how Dracula, the 1897 novel, is tied in specifically to Castlevania canon. Yeah. So Castlevania Bloodlines, I think in 1994, 1993, it's Genesis game. And Quincy Morris is mentioned in the game, but never seen. You never see him. So Quincy Morris, the, the Texas, the Texan character. But John Morris, I guess, is his son a descendant of some sort yeah and then because it takes place in the late 1890s or early 1900s oh, right. I think. that's right bloodlines it's a pretty late castlevania game and so that's kind of the connection and i actually didn't know that bloodlines is not a castlevania game I'm, i actually have bloodlines on genesis and it's also available in the castlevania anthology or whatever now that came out earlier in the year but for me, I, I wasn't familiar enough with Bloodlines like I am with Symphony of the Night or the original trilogy or anything to have really made that connection. And I just didn't know until more recently that Dracula's... Con- I actually cropped up again when I was researching for this episode because I was like, what are the... What are the... Like, I, I was surprised I didn't find anything. Not that I was like using LexisNexis or anything like that or JSTOR, but using Google, like I, I just thought there would be more, more work out there being like, this is all the shit that finds its way in Castlevania from from 1897 Dracula. And there's really not anything like that. But this popped up and I, I had to make note of that because I know a lot of people will be interested in the in the literal connection. So what I'm saying is, is that the Dracula in Castlevania is the Dracula in the book and the Morris offshoot of the Belmonts is from Quincy Morris, the character who kills Dracula in this book. So, oh, so that's pretty cool. It is. It's kind of neat. I mean, it, that's super cool. 
Yeah, and, and there are other connections too. Like the Belmonts are obviously the most important family in Castlevania lore, but it's cool that there's a spinoff there. And I'm satisfied with that telling of of the story because it's not too intimate or anything like that. It's not too crazy. And th- they just tie it in. So yeah, it's kind of neat. I mean, it's kind of a little cool thing. So technically Dracula, 1897 Dracula is a Castlevania book. And, Which is so uh, cool. That's so yeah. thoughtful that they did that because they don't have to do things like that. You know, the fact that they took the extra effort to tie that into what they were inspired by, you know, that's what makes that's what makes something memorable. That's why we're still talking about Castlevania, even though it came out in 1986 initially. You know, that's amazing. That's super cool. Kyle, I just wanted to mention one thing that we didn't touch upon that maybe with me, the Mina character being such a great character, maybe we didn't give her her proper her proper desserts, but. Uh, her proper justice as it were but you know it's important to remember that she was the character of mina while the the gang as it were were sort of putting together their conspiracy and sort of figuring out how they were going to destroy dracula as they were conforming this party against him she's set upon despite the group's best efforts she's set upon by dracula on multiple occasions and even though at a certain point, especially Jonathan and Quincy both guard her with their lives. But despite their efforts, his, he's super powerful. He comes in. He's able to get to her. Dracula is able to get to Mina. And at, at a certain point, at its worst point, ends up she ends up drinking. Dracula forces her to ingest some of his blood. So now he's got his blood coursing through her veins, which gives him a modicum, more than a modicum of control over her. And they know that. So Van Helsing and the group sort of have to take extra efforts, you know, now for Mina not to be completely corrupted by Dracula, not for her to turn like her friend Lucy once did. And there's a great part of the book, which I I wish I remembered a little better, but it was an emotional, one of the most emotional parts of the book for me was when at a certain point Mina realizes and says to the group, don't tell me any of your plans going forward because I'm afraid that if you tell me and I have knowledge of it, then Dracula will automatically know what's going on because I have his blood in my veins now or whatever. And she goes as far as to say, like, if such and such happens or I'm assailed by Dracula again and you're, you have to kill me. And all the, the men in the room start crying because she's so, even, you know, she wants she would give her life for the rest of the party and she says as much and it's it's kind of it's really a touching moment the way it's written and the way the other characters react to what she's saying and she says it in a very a, a sort of matter of fact way it's not like a woe is me type thing it's like you need to promise me that you'll destroy me if that mean you know what i mean that so that right, you right. guys can be saved and that dracula can be destroyed and i love that and i think she's a really strong woman, you know female character in a time where maybe that wasn't, you know, that wasn't so prevalent in fiction. Not that she's the first strong female character, because she certainly wasn't. But that was a great point of the of the book for me, and why she became one of my favorite characters. Besides, of course, the Van Helsing character. By the way, Kyle, I wrote on on Twitter a while ago that I thought the title, if you had, you know, you have your little Twitter profile or social media profile, and you could call yourself warlock that was probably the coolest title but i think the coolest title would be vampire hunter like what cooler title could you have than vampire hunter that's pretty crazy it's awesome and it's funny man because jeff yeager wrote into us we haven't gotten any of these yet so i guess we should start tying them in as we wrap up our episode let's do it my friend 
what is your favorite adaptation of Dracula? It's a tie mm-hmm. for me between Francis Ford Coppola's or Coppola's stylistic 90s adaptation with Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder, along with the 1970 Italian film Count Dracula, starring an older Christopher Lee that was directed by the talented uh, Jesus Franco. Now, it's worth noting that Christopher Lee's name, the actor Christopher Lee, is in Castlevania One's credits. Yes. And w- along with a bunch of other weird ass throw like throwbacks and a lot of it's just English anyway. Uh, but I bring that up because my favorite representation of, I think, what you're talking about um, in terms of the or the inordinate power of Dracula and how he overcomes Mina. And he, it takes like it takes a village, as it were, to, to take this guy out. And I got to give it up to you, although I guess I would have eventually watched it. But Netflix's Castlevania is probably the best representation of Dracula. Full stop, even in video games that I've, that I've seen. It's really good. It's I mean, really it's well done. Awesome. I mean, he's great. And I don't know who does his voice or whatever, but uh, what do you make about like what is some of your favorite interpretations of this story moving forward outside of the realm of the video games that we've talked about so much? You know what? I always like I talked about it a couple of times during the during the show already, but I always really liked the Anne Rice. Well, Anne Rice did the screenplay, but it was directed by Neil Jordan, I think. Interview with a vampire with the vampire. I always really liked that film. Have you seen that, Kyle? I I saw it when I was a kid, and I actually had a poster of it in my room when I was in New England, but I I don't really oh, remember. Did you it really? I yeah, I did because I used to get these like I used to get like I used to have all sorts of weird movie posters on my wall because you just get them for free. You yeah, realize yeah. that it was you thought it was so cool, but it was just these video stores just wanted to get rid of them, and so I had like the professional and like all these weird posters on my wall, and that was one of the Interview with a Vampire was like one of the weird posters <laughs> I had, but I, I I actually don't remember the movie very well so it's very well done i mean it's obviously very well acted really big budget but i also like the fact of how it presents the plight of the vampire and what they need to do to sustain themselves i won't ruin the movie for you guys it's based on the Anne rice book which i never read again Anne rice sort of being another sort of a descendant in the line of you know very well respected vampire lore writers but yeah, great movie. And there's a there's a we always, you always talk about Vampire Hunter D, the manga and the anime. A lot of people talk about it. it's a great it's a great anime series. I never read the manga, but there's actually a lesser known vampire anime that I always loved. And I think it came out sometime in the later eighties called Vampire Princess Miu. And it's about a young vampire girl. She's like fifteen years old. And the whole plot of the it's a it's a really short OVA series i mean maybe four episodes and it's it's based on manga i think i only have one of the manga volumes but it's a really short ova and it's based on a little 15 year old vampire chick who basically she has to go out her job is to defeat evil spirits i think the evil spirits are called shinra and she sets out to sort of defend earth against these evil spirits even though she's a vampire herself and she's protected by this one evil spirit, this one Shinra called Larva, who sort of has this life debt to her. And I forget why Larva has this life debt to her. So she's this little 15-year-old girl, and she has this giant... He looks like... Larva looks like Dracula in, in Simon's Quest. He's like that big black specter with the white mask. He looks really cool. He's a demon underneath, but his life debt is to protect this vampire chick who's supposed to be her enemy. 
you know, his enemy. It's really, really cool. It's really, really stylish. Very well done. I, I love that. And, you know, you talk about all the things, right? You think about Twilight. Me and Colin always make fun of Blade. You know, I name Masira. I name Masira. <laughs> Underworld, you know, from Dust Till Dawn. But there's two. I have to say there's two vampire things that I haven't seen yet. There's a book called Fever Dream, which I never heard of, by George R.R. R. Martin. Of course, everybody knows him from Game of Thrones. But I never knew he did this Fever Dream book, which is a, you know supposedly about vampires. I would like to check that out. And then there's a book which was made into a movie. I mentioned it in the beginning of the show called Let the Right One In by Jean Ashvid Lindquist, I think his name is. And I hear nothing but amazing things about this book and this movie. It's about a little 12-year-old boy who sort of meets, the, you know, befriends a young girl who turns out to be a vampire. That's all I know about it. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's, a, it's I think the movie is from Switzerland. It's from somewhere in Europe. But I hear no. Have you heard of this movie? I hear no. nothing but good things. Nope. Like I've never heard anybody say this movie is not amazing, and it looks very atmospheric. I mean, I've seen trailers for it. It looks really beautifully done. It's very atmospheric. It looks very. I don't know what the right word for it is. It looks really different. It looks very European in its style and its presentation. You know, it looks a little bit, it looks something, it looks something a little different, a little unconventional. So that looks really, that always looked like a little, a lot, a lot of fun to me. Now, Kyle, I went through a rabbit, I went down a really steep rabbit hole with this. You know, I always go through a rabbit hole with researching things. And this was very similar. It reminded me of my Our Lord of the Rings episode because I wanted to know, you know, you think about this ancient book from the Victorian age and everybody talks about this as, you know, the initial piece of vampire fiction, but I wanted to go back and see where it started or what inspired this book. And I found three works, and you guys probably hear me flipping pages this entire episode. This is the first time I ever wrote my notes in a notebook and not on the laptop, <laughs> which is really oh. interesting, right? I know. I, I took a page out of your book, Kyle, with this one. Yeah, I love write I love I love analog writing. I love it. Oh, it's you know, I think I like it better. I think I actually like it a lot better. But I'm going to find these three books for you guys. I want to I want to tell you about them because they date back and each one of them is older than Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, the first one I came across was the and I want to check these out. That's why I'm talking about them with you guys. The Bride of Corinth apparently was a novel from 1797. And then you have another novel called The Vampire by Dr. John Polidori, and that's from 1819. And that was supposed to be the setup, the instigator of presenting the vampire as, you know, the arist aristocratic man, you know, the proper nobleman. And then there was another really interesting one that I read about called Carmilla. Carmilla or Carmilla? And it was from 1872 by Joseph Sheridan Le Faneur. Le Faneur. <laughs> And it's uh, supposedly it's a, a tale about two lesbian vampires or a lesbian vampire, which for 1872, Whoa. I know, holla, what that, you know, so, so that's the, th those three books apparently set the tone for Bram Stoker's, you know, later book in the, in the late 1800s, which is actually really interesting. I always like to see, you know, I was like, this can't be where vampires start. And of course, even these earlier earlier works of fiction, it's all based. A lot of this is based on, you know, ancient legends and tales, and 
you know, basically, basically fireside stories of this, of the existence of real vampires. You know, these were real things, real stories that people told and superstitions and all that kind of stuff, which is really part of the interesting part of doing this book for me. I'm, I'm really glad we got a, cha- a chance to talk about it. Now, do we have more? We have more listener comments or what? What's going on? Yeah, yeah, we do. We have we have a, we have a few more that we'll get through. Let's see. Uh, All right, let's hear the, that second. That second. Before I do that, the second book you mentioned, Vampire. That's with a Y, right? V A M P Y. Yeah, it's R-E. Yeah. Y-R-E. Yep, you got it. Yeah. Yeah, I I love the. I mean, it's essential because he lives in a castle and he is supposed to be a nobleman, but the or the aristocratic nature of Dracula is so essential to that character and. I'm glad you brought up Simon's Quest Dracula, the Castlevania 2's Dracula, because it was, as you mentioned earlier, such a it's such a shame that they made him into such a bitch. I mean, that that last boss fight is horrible. And it's so bad. And it, it's so weird, too, because Castlevania is r- typically a really hard game. Not so much the first one, but the third one, especially is like a real like slog if you ha- don't have the skill to beat it. But I do love Definitely. the way he's represented in that. That is probably my favorite Dracula sprite and representation in all the games until symphony of the night just because he's like a triangle basically like a a cloak with like a head and it's just such a great way to represent him and it's so good it's not until symphony of the night when you see dracula and symphony of the night when he's almost that's when dracula is almost becoming what's the what's the word i want to androgynous yes and and i actually like that part of dracula too like where maybe dracula because like well, let me go into this. Dustin Gontrov wrote into us. He said, my only memory of this book is that reading it in ninth grade is when I learned the word fellatio and what it meant. I'm surprised that my English teacher let us read such a sexually charged book because they're usually such prudes. It's interesting you brought that up just because in ninth grade, I read a book called uh, Go Ask Alice that also had oh, a lot of, of sexual content that I was surprised. Remember that book? It? Oh. Yeah, I, I remember it. It's, it's a good one. Really sad. It is. If it I remember, is. If I remember it is correctly. Sad. Yes, it is. But... And there is fellatio or at least a simulation of fellatio in Dracula as well. But what I love, what I love about Dracula and it's in the book. And I, I think that this is must have been controversial at the time is that when the, the sisters or the whatever, the wives or whatever first confront Harker and they actually try to like. They kind of try to like fuck him in a way or like it's so it yeah. seems. Yeah. And yeah. Dracula busts into the room and is like, get away from him. He's mine. And. And they and he like kind of cast them away for for the time being, and I kind of felt like that was an insinuation and kind of a draw forward. Not that it, I don't know if people read into this the way I read into it is that Dracula is like bisexual at the very least or doesn't really care about. Yes. Now he he does he does set his sights on specific women, but also remember that he's using Renfield, who's a man. Not that he's killing Renfield or sexually abusing or whatever Renfield. But there is a real sexuality to vampirism and to Castlevania and to this book that's really cool. And and the androgynous kind of prince-like, and I mean Prince the Musician, almost like status of Dracula in Castlevania games starting with the PS1 era and moving forward. I actually really love that rendition of him too because he is, he's a supernatural creature that's almost above sexuality, yet he oozes sexuality. He's supposed to be very attractive, very... Right appealing like uh, to, to women or whoever. So I really like that as well. And that it almost is almost the insinuation that he might have a sexual design towards Harker as well. Although he's using Harker for more literal real estate reasons. I like that they put that in the book. So, yeah, I like that. I like that you said he's above sexuality, but also, you know, at the same time, sexual, yeah, very sexual. That's very, I think that's very well said. That's perfect. 
Patrick wrote into us and he says, Hey, Patrick. He said, It was during my freshman year of college that I first read Dracula. I enjoyed the book immensely, but since then, my favorite thing about Dracula, the Dracula character, is seeing all of the interpretations of him that have been created since. Mm. My personal favorite is Count Chocula. Do you guys have any particular <laughs> Dracula interpretations? Very nice. <laughs> that stick in your mind. There are two for me that I think are interesting for different reasons. The first is the Count from Sesame Street. Obviously, you work on Sesame Street, so you know all about it. Oh, he's but the best. I, I always loved that that idea. It's a very literal play on his name, and it's it's really cute, and I always love that interpretation. But we also mentioned earlier the 1920s Nosferatu film. Mm. That interpretation of Dracula isn't a favorite of mine. I don't think that that really looks like Dracula or is, is supposed to be what Dracula is, really. He's not supposed to be like overtly horrifying. That's not the idea. Right, right. right. But that interpretation of him, and we've mentioned this on previous episodes, is horrifying. And one of the scariest things to this day I've ever seen. Still, when I look at that video or that movie or see him, I'm like, holy moly. Is this <laughs> is this like horrifying? So who are your some of your favorite renditions of this character? Those are great. I mean, you guys already picked two great ones in the count. That's a great call. And Patrick with Count Chocula. That's awesome. I auto automatically talked thought about Count Ducula because I'm such a Danger Mouse fan. And I think Count Ducula is a spinoff, if I'm not mistaken, of Danger Mouse. So I, I automatically thought about Count Ducula. But I really like the I really like the Dracula in the new Netflix iteration, Fred Seibert iteration of the Castlevania cartoon. I think it's really, really well done. I think it's very faithful to what we knew of the later iterations of the Castlevania games, like, you know, like Symphony of the Night and Rondo of Blood. But it also sort of takes on a life of its of its own, too, in the animated series, as, f as far as, like, the extent of his vengeance, even his voice, his, his physical characteristics, his... You know, his remorse, you know, not his remorse, but his his sadness and all that kind of stuff. And his, you know, his obviously supercharged lethality and how deadly he is and how menacing he is. Not only not only him, but his entire, you know, all of his servants and his demons that he has working for him. I really like that iteration. It's not the cartoony thing that I'm usually fond of, but I really think it's well done. I think it's really, really well presented. I, I don't think I've ever seen a video game presented in another medium as well as that series is doing with Castlevania. Uh, you know, whether we talk about live action films or translated to comic books or any of that kind of stuff, I think it's really the first time, one of the first times a video game has really been faithfully adapted to an animated series and it really works. Uh, I can't wait to see more of it. I, as I understand, they got even bigger budgets and bigger orders because of how successful it was. And, you know, they just, they really hit, they really hit with that. They really hit it right on the head. I can't, I know I'm going to, I know the show's going to end and I'm going to forget about a vampire, but those are the ones I could think of off the bat. Yeah, it's, it's really a great. I agree with you. First of all, I mean, you and I are both decades long gamers and renditions out of sequence, non-game renditions of games just don't work almost ever and no they don't for some reason this one just it's 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 surprising because it's not surprising in a way because if you gave me castlevania i would write a great story for it i can tell you right now it's it's oh, what i always say about mega would. man it's like i would murder it i, I know i would 
uh, in a good way. I wouldn't actually murder it, so no one wants to see it. You're deeply connected to it. No, don't murder. Right. <laughs> oh my right. God, don't murder. And so like, but it's it's just surprising with Konami's fall from grace. Although I think they're kind of clawing their way back a little bit, but their fall from grace, it's just so weird that they actually let this happen, and then it actually ended up being extraordinary. And I wouldn't be really that surprised if behind the scenes even though they make their money from their gambling machines and Pachinko and, and their health clubs and all this kind of stuff that there's probably some, there are probably some people there that are like, listen, ca- the Castlevania Netflix cart anime is like really popular and really good. And right. we should be delving back into this series and not letting it languish for no reason. And and I've, I've said it time and time again, if they're not going to do anything with it, they really should. And I don't know if they're, they're taking offers or anything from other publishers or if there's any discussions. I, I don't know anything about that, but at least let someone else do something, because why would you lock this thing away? No other vampire video game is going to do this right. And everything that does it right is going to be compared to Castlevania. So you might as well just make it a Castlevania game and don't let Mercury Steam do it or this other you know, Lords of Shadow shit. But like just this should teach them to, to bring it back. I mean, because the story's about. It's the Trevor Simon Sypha Grant Alucard era of Castlevania. So it's also like the great era of of Castlevania. Although I think every of era of Castlevania is Alucard because he's a vampire. And by the way, uh, be- before we uh, go into the final question and then get and then get out of here, I do have to mention you mentioned uh, Camilla or Carmilla or whatever before. Yeah. And yeah, one of and the novels. I think that in Castlevania lore. Carmilla is Dracula's half human or I'm sorry, Dracula's isn't that Dracula's like I'm trying to think. His isn't wife? that his wife? His wife. Isn't that, that was Alucard's mom? I think that's Alucard's mom. But maybe. I could be wrong about that. That could be right. That could be right. And maybe they just use the name, or maybe who yeah. knows? I haven't read that novel. So I really like to crack those earlier vampire novels. I really would like to read them. But yeah, maybe that could be. Even if it's just in service to the name and using the name as a send up or something. Could be. I will investigate. Please do. The final inquiry comes from Brandon Hardman. He wrote, I feel like a lot of old literature can be pretty obtuse, but this was one of the few assigned readings that I actually finished in school. I like to read, just not when forced. Do you think this speaks to how readable this is when compared to other works from this time period? It can't just be that it's horror because Lovecraft is horror too and I really can't get in his work. I've never actually read any Lovecraft or seen any Lovecraft stuff other than Me like, either. you know. I haven't either. Isn't that weird? I mean, his influence on monster media is obviously untold, but. Oh, oh it's unbelievable. With the Tachulu or whatever, the Tachulu. C&Ts don't belong there. But so I wanted to read Brandon's question and because i'm curious if you find it more readable than a lot of victorian literature and and turn of the century literature but i will say that i feel like the the unread the quote-unquote unreadable nature of a lot of this older stuff i think is really overblown this this book shows you how little the language has changed and how the way we understand the kinetic nature of words and sentences has gone unchanged for 130 years pretty much and that a lot of people just don't like reading or absorbing old things because they're old and they think that they're going to be boring. But I encourage this as being a good entry point to being more open to novels from this era. Not that they're all good and not that I'm an expert in them. And obviously there's right. a lot of trash from this era too. This is where the pulp fiction, this is where pulp fiction and pulp novels come from, which is an insult and was an insult back then because they were so cheap to to create and they would come out like every two weeks or whatever. And so... Right. 
you know, literally people would, there would be like these 30, 30 pulp book series that would be out in like two years and they were just ghost written. You know, a lot of them were supposed to be written by one person, but they were written by multiple people. So there's a lot of trash. I'm not saying that, but I do feel like literature from this era is, first of all, extremely important, but also not as unreadable and not as bad, quote unquote, as people think it is. And yeah, not nowhere near, especially in the English language. This is almost I mean, in the 1890s, this is like a really great time for English language writing, not only in England, but in the United States as well. So uh, I don't know. I just encourage people to be more open about reading things that are a little bit older. But do you feel like this book is more readable than a lot of stuff from the time? It might be more readable literally, but do you think it's it's like extraordinarily good compared to a lot of stuff from this era? Uh, you know what? You know, first of all, I'm not. It's funny that this is coming up in conversation because I was just talking about this with my wife and daughter the other day. At the dinner table, we were talking about Shakespeare, and I was talking about, now this is nowhere near Shakespeare, but I was talking about that reading Shakespeare in school never bothered me. The old English, the older use of words, the way, you know, pronouns and, you know, different things are replaced with different words. That never bothered me. I never stumbled on that. I guess I was always lucky like that. It never, I never sort of wanted for the meaning of the things I was reading. It just made sense to me, you know, now. I will say math sometimes didn't make sense to me. Other things, but for some reason, that writing, writing styles and stuff, I'm, I'm able to sort of get through that and just not ever stumble on it. So I could see, some, but now with this, with something with Victorian era, this was late, written in the very late Victorian age, but I could see even somebody seeing the date of the publishing date of this book and being put off by it. But if it still feels very modern to me. And I, even though I'm not, someone to get hung up you know i'm not the guy to get hung up on old english or an older writing style or you know stuff like that i would still say don't think that of this book it still feels relatively modern to me and i think even if you were going to stumble on something that seems a little more old-fashioned in the presentation i think the content is strong enough to get you over that hump and I think it's really the other thing too, which we talked about earlier in the show. I think it's really cool to trace back where so many of these popular things in in pop culture come from. You know, you could dr- draw it right back to novels like this, and how it all started, and how inventive and creative they were, and how bold they were in their time. You know, especially thinking about that sort of buttoned-up Victorian society, and how you know there was so much. You know, everything was so there was so much suppression of any kind of debauchery or sex or violence or any kind of thing like that. So the fact that they this book sort of existed in that world, and I do think it's generally pretty well written as well. I think it's I think it's even though it's not narrative, traditionally narrative, and it's coming from letters and diaries and newspaper clippings and ship logs and all that kind of stuff. I think it's very readable. I think uh, I breezed through it. I really did. And I've read bad books. I've read bad books recently. You know, you know the difference. It, it was. It's a shame that this wasn't bigger uh, in its time. Which reminds me, I have to. My one of my favorite Draculas is also Bela Lugosi in the nineteen thirty one Dracula film. I think it was nineteen thirty right. or nineteen thirty one. Yeah, I mean, when I think of a live action Drac, I automatically think of Bela Lugosi. I think he's he's iconic. I, I love. I love the. I don't know the man who, the actor who played. Van Helsing in that movie, but I like that Van Helsing too. I can't help but think of him. He's, I think he's a little smaller and more, um, 
slight than Van Helsing's supposed to be. I think he's supposed to be a relatively big dude in the book, if I'm not mistaken. But I like that. That movie is that movie is so good. I never get tired of that movie. That's a good one. Even more so than the Hammer films and your beloved Nosferatu Ka, which is su- visually super amazing movie. Gorgeous movie to look at. Oh, it's so. It. I mean, talk about ahead of its time. Is that movie from like 1913 or something? Yeah, it's like. Yeah, I think the early 1920s. I think. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's unbelievable. How beautiful that movie is. Yeah, it's crazy. And oh, it's fucking horrifying. It really. It's totally horrifying. Like I said over and over again, I would rent it over and over again from the Brookhaven Library, but never watch it. I would just look at the cover and then bring it back. And that was enough. All right, Dave, let's uh, begin to wrap it up. I will kick it over to you for our final sequences before we say goodbye. All right, my friend. So, guys, we are doing a little segment we like, a little closing segment we like to call Simon, based on the game that many of us grew up with. Hopefully you guys know the little electronic game where there's a sequence of lights and sounds, red, yellow, green, blue, for instance, and you just follow the sequence as the machine does the sequence, you repeat. And I'm going to do a little audio version of that for Colin based on the theme of today's show, of course, being Bram Stoker's Dracula. So, Kyle, three choices today. In sequence, it's going to be wolf, bat, and mist. All right, cool. Very cool. Okay, based on right. the uh, three forms of that Dracula, three of the forms that Dracula could take. Does, is there another form that I'm forgetting? There's the man. There's the wolf, there's the mist, and there's the bat. Is there? No, that's all of them. I think that's all of them. That's all of them, right? I I think think that's all of them. That we know of. Eyebrows. I'm doing Wiley eyebrows. Dr. Wiley eyebrows. All right, here we go, Kyle. Okay. Repeat after me. Wolf. Wolf. Wolf, mist. Wolf, mist. Wolf, mist, bat. Wolf, mist, bat. Very good. Wolf, mist, bat, mist. Wolf, mist, bat, mist. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf, wolf. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf, wolf. Very good. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf, wolf, bat. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf, wolf, bat. Very good. Wolf, mist, Bat, mist, wolf, wolf, bat, mist. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf, wolf, bat, mist. Very good. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf, wolf, bat, mist, bat. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf, wolf, bat, mist, bat. Oh, you're going to get this one. Wolf, mist, bat, mist, wolf, wolf, bat, mist, bat, wolf, mist. Wolf, mist, bat, Mist, wolf, wolf, bat, mist, bat, wolf. wolf. You got it. One more. One more. Wolf. No, it was mist. Uh, the last uh, one. <laughs> oh, you were so far. Let me count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You did ten. I hope I didn't mess that up and add two at the end of that one. I don't think I did. I hope I didn't. That might have been my fault. <laughs> I don't think I did, but that was I think that was your best one yet. That was pretty good. I I was going for 13 like usual, but yeah, that was that was good, man. I'm impressed. I had another useful you did another useful thing unintentionally or maybe intentionally or un, I don't think you did okay, it intentionally. Tell me. It was uh well, you did like a sequence where it was the highest in the alphabetical order to the lowest, so wolf missed bat and then you went missed wolf 
So it was like oh. a full circle. So that was easy oh, enough for okay. me to remember the first five. Oh, and I then, see yeah. that. So Bat was in the middle and then either side is missing and either side is Wolf. Oh, that's cool. That's right. a very clever device. Very clever device, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. All right, let's do a dad joke or two before we uh, skaddle. Skedaddle. Okay, I did something. I did something different today. I tested my two new dad jokes on the kids and Helene and uh, they didn't go too well. <laughs> although, although I laughed out loud when I found both of these today. Uh, the, yeah, they didn't. They didn't seem to share my enthusiasm. But all right, Carl. Why did the man fall down the well? Why did the man fall down the well? I don't know. Because he couldn't see that well. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good one. I like that one. That might that's be a the best good dad joke I've ever heard. That's a really good one. What is wrong with my family? All right. This one, this one, I, I think I should have ended with that one because that's my favorite, but I'll, I'll give you this other one. I like this one too. Kyle, did you hear about the kidnapping at school? I didn't. It's fine. He woke up. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a pretty good one too. The first one's better, but the, the, the that, I like that first one. I like that first because one. he couldn't see that well. <laughs> Dude, that's that's like that's a pretty that's like a really authentically good one. I think it is. I like that one. See that oh, well. glad to. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's a good one. Bravo, bravo. Oh, nice, nice. I like it. Thank you, my friend. All right, Dave, let's uh, let's go. Let's wrap it up. I've ordered right. some five guys. It's en route, so I'm ready to eat soon. Oh, nice. I'm going to go watch my, my my cringe compilation videos while I eat on YouTube. <laughs> Enjoy that. For everyone out there, we hope you enjoyed our episode of Knockback All About Dracula and the many things that were inspired by the 1897 novel. Remember, the novel is in... It, you, I think you could probably just go online and read the novel for free. If you have a reader or a reading app, so like whatever... You know, Amazon uses now Kindle or whatever, whatever uh, other Apple versions or Android versions are out there. It's probably actually downloadable for free. But if you want a like a, a page turning version, like a physical version of the book, you can get it for really cheap. So there are annotated versions and all sorts of other stuff that you can get. But the, it's like five bucks to get a copy of this book. And, I, and we do recommend that you read it. So worth it's it. For, so worth it. Definitely. You can support our show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins last stand for early ad free access, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas, etc. We really do appreciate you there. We will see you next time for more knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom.
Chris Adams, Carlos Algaret, Morgan Ashley, Saul Balcazar, Taylor Barkley, Martin Beck, Tyler Bello, Mark Boggio, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Eric R. Brown, Jason Budnick, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Nick C., Alex Cabrera, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Rodney Coleman, Simon Conception, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Philip Crone, Daniel D'Amour, Colin Davenport, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Jerome Ferreira, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Ruidon, Fitzpatrick, Chris Galvin, Darren Gardner, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Tyler Goodwin, Hayden Gorringe, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Jonathan H., Eric Harden, Tyler Harris, Richard Hebert III, Kyle Hagel, Shane Hendrickson, Wyatt Henry, Robbie Hensley, Scott Hernandez, Asa Haas, Johnny Humphreys, Blake Israel, Azan Isa Al Raisi, Josh Yeager, Joshua Jonathan, Paul Joyce, Greg Julius, Anton Kay, Patrick Kelly, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Mason Cadillac, Jackson Lastiqua, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Scott Lovelace, Josh M., Kiet Mai, Ryan T. Mandel, Ross Maranka, Matt Martin, Sean Mason, Jordan Mouse, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Raul Melendez, Andrew Mendoza, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Stephen Nieder, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, Dan Nolan, George Anthony Nunez, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, Andrew Parker, Zach Parsley, Daniel Parsons, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Purdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymel, Jeff Pollard, Lawrence F. Prokop, Nathan R., Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Daniel Rivas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Jose Salinas, John Schultz, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, Matthew Tamer, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Michael Vecchio, Justin Wagaman, Oakley Waldron, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayne, David Wright, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Bloody Fang, Organic Produce, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, McDog18, Infinite, Boots, Mad Mock Media, Not Your Real Dad, Mubarak, Craftheads Podcast, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, A Fortuna, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, Gamer Filmaholic, Megadet, and Rainick.